favorite actor Dennehy, influence undue. Wife shot, judge rules. Favorite gal Richardson, for whom I loves. Washing rugs, plugs, slugs, and mugs. Running down, uh, running from the law, also on the news. Wrongfully imprisoned to be continued. Welcome to a very <laughs> special episode of Grunt Work, giving you a little bit of uh, the Chicago indie hip-hop scene there with some Serengeti. Uh, the only podcast about the TV show Home Improvement that cares about the other work that actors have done. I am your host, Landon Hungjury Solano, joined always by my co-host Truman, motion to rescind that last joke, Caps. I would not motion to rescind that last joke because it makes me think of the episode of Arrested Development where they are on Judge Reinhold's uh, courtroom TV show <laughs> where William Hung is the house band with the Hung Jury. So I actually like it because it makes me think of something else that I thought was funny. Um, the the problem with the joke that needs to be rescinded was that I uh, gave it the wrong enunciation, which uh, should have been, I am your host, Landon Hung. Jury Solano, mm-hmm. in which case there's more reason to rescind the joke. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. I, I guess in in that case, uh, I'll I'll put in a petition to the court, and we'll see if we'll have we can right. you know try and compel the jury to forget that that joke ever happened and oh. rule it totally inadmissible. Truman, we are um, here for the first part of a two part, very special bonus episode. The z- oh god, epi- a bonus episodes. Ep- ep- <laughs> a, a, a bonus episode is yes. Um, Good lord, we're just starting I, out this long episode, and I'm already off the hook. Yeah, I, I yeah, and and you know, look, and speaking of off the hook, I don't just don't want to let it go unmentioned. Your talk singing, I think you have been putting more and more effort and like Weird Al levels of preparation into it, whereas I am like <laughs> ten minutes before the show, like googling up song lyrics, and if I can swap one lyric for Grunt or Al or Brad, it's like <laughs> cool, I'm done. Whereas you're sitting there, what I I started doing, and then I realized you were doing a better job than me, and so I thought I got to step up my game. I got to find. Uh, hip-hop songs that actually have to do somewhat with the theme of the episode we're doing and then just gently swap out some of the lyrics for things that happened in the episode. You were you were vigorously swapping out lyrics for things that happened in the episode, <laughs> sir. That was vigorous swapping in this not, last one. Not, well, today's uh, song, I couldn't pass up. I mean, how often do you come across the fact that you're doing a home improvement podcast covering a Brian Dennehy movie, and there's a hip-hop song called Dennehy? <laughs> I I mean I guess I've never come across that situation. I didn't realize there was a hip hop song called Dennehy. There is. Yeah, no, you couldn't pass it up. I would have been pissed at you if you did. It's it's a song called Dennehy, and the the chorus goes: favorite actor Dennehy, favorite drink O'Doul's, Bears, Hawks, Bulls, and wow, he's a Chicago rapper, uh, Serengeti for those of you who care. And um, the song is kind of misleading though because. As the lyrics reveal throughout the song, he's actually more of a fan of Tom Berenger. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like how the movie Chinatown isn't really set in Chinatown. Like Dennehy is more of a state of mind. Like it, it, it's Brian it Dennehy symbolizes something exactly because he's a Chicago rapper listing all of these Chicago things. But Dennehy's actually from Connecticut, but he's a Chicago state of mind. Mm, mm. You know, I, I think if you're really going to be kind of 
you know, starting your rap song, titling your rap song with the name of famous Chicago actors, you should go with somebody like John Mahoney or Dennis Farina, who are real <laughs> icons of the Chicago theater scene, or Michael Shannon, of course. Um, oh. But again, that's just me. I don't, I'm not 8 Mile, you know, I don't Neither have the streets in, in me. He's not, I know he's not 8 Mile either. I'm just saying, you know, I uh, I don't know from the raps. We, um, um, we're covering... A TV movie, a two-part TV movie Ooh. called Undue Influence that is based on a legal thriller uh, by the name of Undue Influence, uh, yes. written by Steve Martini. It was published yes. in 1994 by Putnam. Um, I want to ask you, Truman— We'll give and you, the book was published, and and people were like, "We need to rush this to the screen. They, the world really, needs to yes. see this." I mean, I, I had to imagine they were. It was like a side by side deal where it's just like, "We'll publish this, and we're working on the t- uh, TV slash movie rights uh, immediately." Um, maybe, maybe maybe the executive sealed that deal over a three martini lunch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Making reference to a kind of a thing that used to happen anyway landon please continue See, okay. if i if i don't laugh at your joke you fill the vacuum with an explanation which i'm finding to be we, very humorous it may which makes the podcast worse in some <laughs> yes i mean who, so who my nervous laughter has a function um yes so you know sometimes what happens i'm not saying this is the case with undue influence i don't have the full history of the book but sometimes what happens is uh an author will try to get their hands dirty in the screenwriting world and the producers or studios will be like, oh, well, maybe. But uh, if it had a built-in audience as a book beforehand, uh, then maybe we could do something with it. So they'll often – I know this. There's a Kevin, there's a really famous Kevin Costner movie that's eluding me at the moment that had a very similar situation uh, where they said, okay, the screenplay, it's almost there. But let's let's try it as a novel first, and then we'll simultaneously publish the novel, build the audience there, and work on the screenplay to get the TV rights for it. And if the novel sells, then we'll greenlight the script. Waterworld, yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't think it was Waterworld, which is a fantastic movie. Uh, I, I look, do you think yeah. the movie was good? The novel was even better, but the, the, the coup de grace truly is the ride at Universal Studios Hollywood. Continue. Uh, it's true. Who? Okay, so um, did you have any idea about undue influence before uh, I brought this up to you? I did not. I, I, oh, my own, like the, Steve Martini, as I've mentioned in another episode, I'm aware of him from seeing his thick, boring ass looking books laid out on the book table at Costco as a child <laughs> and thinking that it was Steve Martin until yeah. realizing it was not. Um, Which is, and, yeah. I think, worth worth mentioning. Like, there's a certain brand of, you know, legal thriller or legal drama that is I don't mean to be derisive when I use this term, but like they're airport novels. They're meant yes. to be written in a way that you can skim them while keeping one eye on your screaming child running through the airport and listening for your gate number uh and yes. not actually miss anything. <laughs> yes. That's what this is. And so I I, I want to be clear about that up front to not hold it to Chinatown standards. (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, I and I was about to make a joke about that, but then I do realize that I've spent the better part of the last three or four years comparing every episode of Home Improvement to multiple Emmy Award-winning sitcom <laughs> Frasier. So I guess we do have a tendency to make unfair comparisons between things. Uh, a little bit. I, well, well, while we're, do you have more disclaimer or do? Uh, well, I, just, I, have, I, I wanted, wanted to talk a little bit about this, but you know, uh, I'll ask you for a synopsis in a minute if that's what you're getting to. No, I, I was just getting. I was just. All I would say, like, is that I think that the legal thriller is probably one of my absolute least favorite genres of mm. things because it just, uh, even the best possible legal thriller uh, is still going to be mainly dudes, predominantly white dudes, sitting in a room wearing suits, having conversations about things, which, <laughs> which is... Making decisions, yeah. Yeah, which is not to say that movies based around conversation are bad. Some of my favorite movies are people sitting in rooms having conversations. I just automatically like maybe this was bred into me as a child i'm just oh legal proceedings cool can't <laughs> wait to watch that so you know I, it's weird i i'm kind of with you there but i also understand the appeal of it um there's a reason why law and order is on its one millionth season and six thousandth spinoff <laughs> yes i mean they work and um you know there's there's a comfort to it for some people, there are some legal dramas and some legal thrillers that I absolutely love, um, but they they are not to sound elitist, but they are they are kind of in a different class. You know, I'm thinking of yeah. Twelve Angry Men, obviously the fantastic sure. Sidney uh, Lumet movie, uh, bri- brilliant movie, a movie that is not really about lawyers; it's just about jurors, though, right? Right. Which that to me makes it better. Yeah. Um, the uh, Anatomy of a Murder with uh, uh, Jimmy Stewart and Otto Preminger directed that one. Yeah. Uh, my great aunt happens to be in that movie, by the way. What? Uh, <laughs> she's, she's just one of the people in the court. I mean, she does not have a acting part. They, they filmed it in Marquette, Michigan, uh, or at least part mm. of it. And so they had uh, locals come in and fill out the courtroom. But she's in the front R- row. Real... Real Michiganders, get them in there, folks. <laughs> Authenticity counts. The Exorcism of Emily Rose is one of the rare courtroom horror movies. <laughs> what? I didn't realize that was a that, I didn't realize that was a legal horror movie. That's... Yeah, yeah. Campbell Scott and Laura Linney. Um, they are uh, in a courtroom discussing the uh, legalities of an exorcism. Uh, really? and whether or not this priest that was brought in to exorcise this. Uh, quote-unquote possessed girl was uh the legal thing to do uh interesting so there there are interesting ways to go about it but i think that the people who love the the genre love it for its conventions you and yes. i think that's what we're getting here I, I there's a certain like baseline entry fee that we have to pay going into undue influence which is people want you know the heart of gold uh protagonist who is a single father just trying to make it. <laughs> yep, I, I feel yep. like this this is describing a, any number of legal thrillers. Yeah. Uh, the single father just trying to make it, make ends meet, and do what's right in the world, and gets caught up in a case that's a little over his head, and uh, he has to, you know, buy, you know, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The, the Hooker by crook? Hooker crook, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Claw himself out of you know uh, the water, the turbulent waters, to overcome the hard-nosed, experienced lawyer who's uh, working the prosecution. Yes, yes, and I I feel like it also paints just sort of a 
rosy picture of the justice system in this country that that's even possible that like a right. small time <laughs> less less well financed lawyer can triumph but over I think that's yeah. I, I think that's part of the appeal uh as, speaking from someone who you know I, I don't want to speak for a group of people who love this genre for specific reasons when I'm not one of them but if I had to guess I would say that that fantasy is part of the appeal sure yeah I I think that a big also I think that a big audience for books movies genre this genre in general is uh lawyers or lawyer adjacent people who i think make up fully 15 percent of the population of america just like either people who are lawyers or like paralegals mm-hmm. or people who work for a lawyer or like an accountant for a lawyer like people <laughs> are like oh this hire is a lawyer <laughs> yeah exactly people people who have gone through you know who have gone through some sort of legal proceeding yeah. and are familiar with this world i am i guess i'm fortunate enough to have not had to have a brush with the legal system Aside from the fact that basically all of my girlfriend's family are lawyers. So, like, I haven't, maybe because I haven't ever had to be involved with the court proceeding, I don't have a, a window into this world. Yeah. Well, and I think this is the last point I'm going to make about the, the airport novel genre, which is, you know, you get a lot of these legal proceeding. This, this particular book happens to be a mystery. Uh, yes, a drama mystery. So at the heart of it, a you know, there's a you know a broken family, which is the drama part. But there's the the aspect of it's just a yeah, I'm not going to say tightly wound, <laughs> but just a enough put together mystery that people who are loosely following while dozing on an airplane, uh, and you know dozing in and out and reading a paragraph and falling back asleep can try to piece it together before the end. Like, they, it, yes. it can it make them, help them feel a little bit smart. Yes. Not that they're yes. not smart. I'm not, I don't want to go down that route. But, uh, you know, there's there's just like, there's a puzzle aspect to it. It's like doing the daily, your, your local papers crossword puzzle. It, it's, it's, uh, it's Sudoku with characters, basically. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It really is. I, Yes, I I would agree with that. And and I think that this adaptation is very faithful in the sense that it th- this this movie it every frame of it feels like something that was purchased in an airport. Um <laughs> no, to, okay. to simply distract yourself. I want to say I think that the experience of this, I know you're not as as stringent on this as I am in terms of making sure whatever you watch is the highest quality thing you can find, you know, the the best uh, resolution on the best TV and the best the, sound, yada, yada, yada. The best exotic Marigold Hotel, you know, I, I won't settle for for a Marigold Hotel of any lesser quality. Um, I, you know, I tend to be that, that kind of, person about watching things like i'll hold off on watching something if i know that a better version you know better transfer of it's coming soon that said we did watch this on youtube (laughs) and it was a it was a youtube transfer from a recorded television movie so like broadcast wise so it's not coming from direct from the source i think a lot of the murkiness of it comes just from the bad transfers so uh, i think that affects a lot of I, I I I'm gonna and we'll get to it. We'll get to it. I hear you I hear you letting air out of your I, balloon. I'm, I, I'm I'm like I'm about to crack a window in my in my you office are. with the pitch of these things. Cause I, I I think that as someone who's watched a lot of shitty YouTube transfers of old Mystery Science Theater episodes, uh there's only so much that bad quality of of uh 
video and pixelation can do to adjust the... That's all I'll say. We'll get into it. We will get into it. In fact, I'm getting into it now. Um, With Mystery Science Theater, even with the transfer of the transfer, you know, they're, they're... putting a transfer of an old movie onto the screen for them to put their silhouettes on, and then you're watching a YouTube version of that ported from TV to YouTube. The thing with that, though, is generally speaking, most of what they're covering is brightly lit stuff. Not not across the board, but... Yeah, they did a fair number of black and white movies, but yes. But black and white movies that weren't shot at night, because they mostly didn't do movies too much shot at night back in the day. Sure. Uh, yes. This movie is very much going for that noir feel, uh, the kind of new uh, neo noir. It's it's darkly lit, even when it's inside and it's daytime, you know. Um, and I think because of that, like the introduction to Jean Smart, uh, her character, which we'll get to in the deep dive, you could barely see her. <laughs> yes, and I I I think that if this was a pristine transfer from the original negative. You would get the the artistry of what they're going for. I'm not saying they necessarily succeed. That is just completely muddled down uh, by it being transferred a number of times and then being ported to YouTube. It just turns it into hmm. a black mess. Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, that's one opinion. My opinion is just that this movie sucks. It was it was just not shot particularly well because it was the 90s and there were four TV channels and we just had to create content and 75 million people watched it because 75 million people watched everything. Uh, this is 1996. I mean, there, was, there was cable at this time. Okay, okay. So yeah, there were there were 20 channels okay. and only and only 35 million people watched this. This is going to be the longer of the two episodes for sure cuz we're not going to put all this front stuff on the next episode. But um before we go into No, the, I'm going to relitigate this lawyer <laughs> term. Before we go into Double the deep jeopardy. dive, uh why don't you give us just uh, so so people can have a lifeline uh understanding what we're covering. Give us a quick synopsis and then I'm going to go in through some tech specs and then we'll go into okay. the the deep dive. <laughs> tech specs all right (laughs) here comes the synopsis home improvements patricia richardson sizzles as virginia mother laurel vega whose fractious child custody battle with her ex-husband senator jack vega takes an unexpected turn when jack's new wife melanie is murdered just hours after laurel is recorded fighting with her on the home's cctv cameras with laurel arrested for murder and insisting on her innocence it falls to laurel's newly widowed brother-in-law Paul Madriani to try and find the real murderer, all while keeping Laurel's son out of the senator's clutches and negotiating a simmering romance with FBI agent Dana Colby. In parentheses, Frazier's Gene Smart. <laughs> I kind of, as someone who has read the backs of VHS boxes in video yeah. stores in his time, I, 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 let, I channeled that. You channeled that with, uh, with a dose of s- snark. I mean, am I a little snarky? Yes. I mean, well, I I think the biggest snark was my suggestion that Patricia Richardson is in this movie at all, but we'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, I I suspect she'll be more in the second half, um, but... God, I hope so. (laughs) Uh, Okay. This uh, Undue Influence, uh, the the TV movie, premiered on September 15th, 1996. It's directed by a Mr. Bruce... Pittman, Truman, I know you know who this guy is. Yeah, the name definitely the name the name definitely rings a bell. 
Um, but I actually don't know who this guy is. But but let's just I'm just gonna keep uh, talking here while I type the word Bruce Pittman into oh Bruce Pittman of course director of the last movie in 2012 where the spirit lives <laughs> world according to Nick well that was cut off confidential most so, oh, Sue Thomas FBI oh who could forget Sue Th- Shattered City the Halifax explosion twice in a lifetime Paradise Falls I mean I'm I'm not gonna lie he he blew his wad uh, sorry for that metaphor um very early by doing hello mary lou prom night two Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) but that was after two episodes of airwolf of course yeah uh he also did an episode of the 80s version of the twilight zone and two episodes of the friday the 13th tv series um did he direct an episode of er just kidding we're not playing that game this episode no and i would have spoiled it anyway because i'm looking at his imdb right now <laughs> that's true uh so it's directed um, by bruce Pittman and written by philip Ro- uh, rosenberg and i just want to read some of his tv credits so okay there's a certain naming convention when it comes to legal thrillers <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and I'm not going to lie, I have a little bit of nostalgia because it really, really reminds me of my grandparents. Like, they watched every single Mike Hammer TV movie that existed. Like, that's how I learned who Stacy Keach was. Um, Philip Rosman, uh, um, Rosenberg. Mm-hmm. I, okay, I'm just going to read you a few of his. Uh, he's almost exclusively a TV movie writer. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, in the line of duty, a cop for the killing. Till mm. death do us part. In the shadow of a killer. Final appeal. Murder of innocence. Murder between mm. friends. Menendez. A killing in Beverly Hills. Deadly A lot vows. of colons. <laughs> a lot of colons getting Moment used. of truth. A family divided. In the lake of the woods. Death benefit. <laughs> I, I like I like to think that those last four that you said were all just one very long title, all separated by a series of colons. Uh, close to danger, five desperate hours, murder in the mirror. So uh, he's he's figured out what he's doing with his life, and more power to him. I, you know, like I'm not gonna lie, it's probably I don't know, maybe not super creatively fulfilling, but to just like. I don't know there's something a little romantic in the kind of vein of Dashiell Hammett or Robert uh, uh, Chandler to just like I'm gonna write these pulp TV movies. <laughs> I I I like how the name the naming convention there puts me in mind of the the kind of Robert Ludlum spy novel mm-hmm. uh, names. It's like the Jansen Directive, the Chancellor Manuscript, the Mataresi <laughs> Circle, the Scarlatti Inheritance, the Holcroft exactly. Covenant. Yes. <laughs> The per- Percival like if, if, Mosaic, if, the Matlock Paper, if the Rosenberg, Gemini Contenders. If he, if his career started twenty years earlier, he would be absolutely writing those like espionage paranoia seventies thrillers. The Aquitaine Progression, the Sigma Protocol, <laughs> the Rhineman Exchange, the Road to Gandolfo. The Bancroft Strategy, The Icarus Agenda, The Cry of the Halidon. There are so many of these fucking books. The Scorpio Illusion. Are, are these real books? These are all. Re- I, okay, I'm not I was, that good I was of an improviser. Say, I was like that. That would have blown my mind if you had improvised all of those. The Lazarus Vendetta. Oh, you'd like this one. Maybe it's maybe it's a book about how Robert Altman made his uh, movies. The Altman Code. The Tristan Betrayal. <laughs> 
Oh, and then there's one of them. This looks like a, a, a companion of multiple Robert Ludlum books called The Ludlum Triad, The Hallcraft Covenant, The Matteresi Circle, The Born Identity. We don't, this is not what the podcast is about. It but, is not. Uh, uh, but we but it, spent it 30 minutes on be. it. <laughs> it would listen yeah and i spent 90 minutes watching this damn movie and i would much rather talk about robert ludlum titles wow okay so you you are firmly on the side of you did not like this um i, I mean okay and and that is to take nothing away from the performances in here most certainly not to take anything away from patricia richardson who i think does a very good job in this movie i just think it's you know it is what it is i think that's the thing is like there there's a certain like as I, I referred to it earlier, an entrance fee. Like, this is what you're paying for. And, you know, knowing that going into it, and maybe maybe, maybe you didn't know what it was going into it. I don't know. Um, I knew it was a legal thriller. I knew I okay. knew it was already not my genre. <laughs> yeah. Um, like, taking it on its own terms, it slid right off my brain. <laughs> I, I, I found it kind of hard to follow, but, like, you know, I, I'm watching it for some charming people getting me from point A to point B in the most convoluted way possible. And it was, yeah. you know, not the and, worst and thing you, I've ever seen. And you were still able to, to listen for your gate announcement. And so you could make your plane to uh, you make your plane to Chicago <laughs> in time. Um, so, OK, one thing I'm going to do when we go through the deep dive here is um, I, I, I've read Undue Influence. I took it upon myself to read this book. Uh, I read it much. <laughs> I read Wait. it months ago, and so I've forgotten most of it. Uh, Good, nice. That's <laughs> as, the way to do as it, man. Airport novels are meant to be, but to justify my time spent reading it, I have bookmarked um, the character introductions. So whenever we oh, come across nice. a new character in the movie, I'm going to read how Steve Martini describes them in the book. Uh, nice. Now, the only thing I will say about how this book is written. That oh dear! Really threw me off. It's just not my preferred style. Is it's written in first person active, which mm. is bizarre. <laughs> it's not. I went. It's I'm going. You know, like I'm Ooh. I'm going up the stairs and blah Ew, blah blah. Weird. It's like it's bizarre. Uh, it's just not what I'm used to reading. Um, so I I'm, wanted to just mention that before I started reading these excerpts, and they sounded strange. I'm going to just. I, having never read any Steve Martini and not knowing anything about him besides this, I'm I'm going to hazard a guess that is he one of those writers who spends a lot of time describing female characters' breasts when they're first introduced, or is we'll, that is we'll get to that. <laughs> oh boy, oh boy, I nailed it, folks. That's that counts as a chalupa challenge. Everybody gets um, Mexican food. The thing okay. is, one thing I did notice is that he spends. An inordinate amount of time describing the appearance of the females and nice. almost yep. zero time spending the appearance of the male, but gives yeah. them more of a back. We'll, we'll get to it in due time. Um, so let's let's go <laughs> yeah. into the deep dive, but I want to start. This is, this is the thing that only Steve Martini does. No other male <laughs> author does this. It is purely a quirk of Steve Martini. Uh, I want to start the deep dive with a, um, a quote that starts the book. That oh is not God. in the movie. Uh, and it's from Exodus twelve thirteen, which Ooh. starts. <laughs> and love it when we start with a Bible quote. Always <laughs> a good sign. And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Jesus. <laughs> I mean, literally, I guess. Uh, that, mm, that seems kind of intense. Uh, yeah. 
uh, intense is the word for it. Yeah, um, the the an intensity that I did not feel is lived up to in this movie that nonetheless in, ends with an explosion. So we so open. Yeah, let's get into it. Uh, we open. We open with a black screen and white text uh, of each. <laughs> you want to go this slow about it? Yeah, yeah, dude. Yeah, I didn't have any plans today. Let's just really <laughs> glacial pace. Okay, we start with um uh a, a kind of a, a prelude, a prologue of uh. Mm-hmm. Brian Dennehy and his sick wife in bed, who looks a lot like Marion Cotillard. Uh, yeah. She's dying and making her last wishes, and he's looking, uh, you know, concerned over her. Mm-hmm. Yes. This feels pretty tropish as, as mm-hmm. you know, to open a book. Like, you got to give the character emotional stakes. And and you've got to you've got to show that oh there's a reason he's single and able to mingle with Gene Smart <laughs> and it's because of something tragic so you got to feel bad for him. Well yeah yeah exactly um you know it it it's a trope but it gets us to the emotional place uh, the emotional stakes that we need to be at I guess although this starts a problem I have throughout which we'll get to uh, which is the amount of time spent with um the daughter. Uh, his daughter yes. in this because she doesn't play into yes. the plot but she plays into the scene where the daughter comes in so you realize oh there's a sick mother he has a daughter she's dying not the daughter the wife is dying and he's gonna yeah. be left with a as a single father and yes. but the, the biggest takeaway I think from this scene which could or could not do without the daughter is that the mother says uh, mentions Laurel her sister and says you you have to take care of my sister so mm-hmm. one thing, and this is something the book does a lot better than the movie, is ties, makes that emotional tie to why he is so invested in uh, Patricia Richardson, who plays a character named Laurel, why he's so invested in her story is because he made this kind of deathbed promise to his wife. Yes, yes. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I, you know, I myself would be invested simply because, well, it's Patricia Richardson. We have to help her out. But, <laughs> yeah, exactly, you know. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, so we get the kind of like last final moment of the mother passing away in the bed and we cut to the athletic club where, uh, Patricia Richardson works. Um, we find out her name is Laurel. Yes. Do you find it hard to call her Laurel? I, I look, I, in, in my notes, I just kept calling her P rich the entire time. <laughs> P rich. Uh, yes. So <laughs> perfect. P P rich is at the health club and she finds out that her sister has died yeah. and, um, we cut from that to, I guess, the house where the Brian Dennehy's character lives, which is just staggeringly ugly. It has this weird <laughs> cylindrical front room, like something I, I built out of like Legos by a child. Not gonna lie, '90s fashion and architecture is just probably something we all want to forget. Yes, but we can't because so much of it is littered around the, the our, our our country and our world, like uh, old ruins. <laughs> it's true. Uh, uh, but, but Laurel, yeah, Laurel yeah. arrives there, and uh, moments later, um, a, a teen appears on his motorcycle. Uh, a teen appears. <laughs> a teen Roll initiative. Appears. Uh, this is uh, Laurel's son, Danny, and yes. he comes in and, you know, passes his condolences as well. One deviation from the book is that Laurel has two kids. In the movie, she only oh. has one, Danny. Uh, she has a, a girl and a boy. Um, and they probably rightly so got rid of one of the kids. They probably could have gotten rid of Paul's daughter in this movie and made it, you know, just one hour and a half long movie instead of two. Yeah. But would have been great. Here we would have liked that. 
Yeah, here we are. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, love to see only child representation in movies. So, you know, I think we can both be happy about that. Yep. Um, uh, but this, this also begins, like the daughter asking these uh, very existential questions to her father uh, way, you know, uh, wise beyond her time, I guess. And she's like, uh, she asks if Laurel and, and Danny are going to come live with them now that mommy's gone. Um, and, you know, basically posing this trope of a child posing questions to their single parent that they just don't have answers to <laughs> just yeah, to show exactly. how hard the struggle of being a parent is. And, and also so that then it, to give the single parent the opportunity to explain a bunch of uh, kind of shoe leather logistics that the audience can pick up on. <laughs> exactly. We go to uh, uh, one of my. Yeah. What, I'm sorry. One of my notes about the, this daughter who has curly brown hair is yeah. just Andy McDowell ass kid. So <laughs> kind of has those vibes. We continue. This is all done in like one. So it sounds like multiple scenes, but we've got this kind of saxophony score. That's how you know it's a. a Legal thriller. <laughs> My note on the music was, Oh, that's pretty good. Music. That's, that's also pretty close. Uh, also, it's, it's not. It's it's like a saxophone mixed with choir. It's weird. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's weird. That's what you could say about the '90s and their choice of made-for-TV music. Um, and so all of these are kind of blending into a sort of montage or series of scenes. It's weird, but then we so we continue this amalgam of scenes into the funeral of yes. uh, Paul's wife. Uh, everyone's kind yeah. of standing around, and I, I got to take a technical aside for a moment here. Um, the, the credits, the credits crop back up, which surprised me for one thing. But Jump the scare. the sound continues as the the priest is giving the you know as I lay me down to sleep. That's the prayer, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, yeah dust, as I walk through the valley of the, sh- of the shadow of death, I take a look <laughs> around and realize I have nothing left. Um, as he's giving this, like, we're getting the credits, but then it, like, I wasn't sure if my computer was, like, <laughs> loading something and it freezed the my screen. With each credit, the screen froze. And I'm like, yep, that's weird. Why did that happen? And it continued, and it got to the point where it said, edited by Michael Todd. And I'm like, Michael, I got some questions for you. Just because you... Strange choice. (laughs) Just because you can edit doesn't mean that you should. Um, Yeah, I think that... that well, my honestly, my diagnosis for this this inexplicable series of of freeze frames yeah. is that they they got to the end and they were like, oh shit, the broadcast cut needs to be like forty five <laughs> seconds longer than it is, and then the and then the editor from the back of the room piped up, I have an idea. <laughs> it's so crazy, it might just work. Or or the editor couldn't figure out how to make the movie forty five <laughs> seconds longer, and then he got in his car and he turned on the radio, and the Jay Giles band song Freeze Frame was playing, and he was like, I've got it. It's so brilliant, it might just work. Yes, uh, and more of those sorts of quotes uh, from the background. Uh, everyone's mourning Patricia Richardson. Man, she she's really going through the ringer here. Uh, yeah. It's her sister, after all. Um, yes. Some unknown gentleman arrives in the background, but he's known to us because he is known character actor Richard Mauser. Uh, he is standing watching, uh, watching the funeral happen, and uh, Laurel. Man, she catches wind. She must smell his expensive politician perfume and cologne wafting over to her because she sees him and gives him a steely look and immediately chases after him. 
She is yeah, not she, having him here. Yeah, she's screaming at him, telling him to get out of there. Uh, you know, uh, this is her ex-husband. We we come to learn. At one point, as, as he is as he is walking away, uh, she says to Brian Dennehy, "I'm glad he didn't bring that bitch with him." And it was just kind of <laughs> to hear to hear Patricia Richardson swear in a not eight o'clock ABC way is is. I can only yeah. I can only compare it to Mystery Science Theater 3000, the movie where Tom Servo says shit, and it's like, what? You can't say that on Comedy Central. <laughs> um, I, by the way, I was always waiting for that on Netflix, them to drop one of the one of the forbidden words, and they mm-hmm. never really mm-hmm. did, but they they flirted with some other stuff. But uh, that is a yeah. great comparison. Um, Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. It's the number of times I have referenced the Tom Servo saying shit moment was, uh, you know, that had a huge influence on my life. <laughs> um, so th- th- we go from there then to her yep. in legal proceedings with her ex-husband, Senator yes. uh, Senator Jack uh, Vega, uh, Jack Vega. Yes. And it's a custody here. It's a child custody hearing for her son, their son. Yes. And it's. So and she's there. Paul is being. Yeah. Paul is representing her. He's representing yes. Laurel, uh, as was the deathbed vow he made to his wife. Uh, make sure you look after her. So apparently that extends to legal proceedings. <laughs> make sure you give her free legal counsel for the rest of her life. Uh, I've, uh, pretty pretty good deal if you can swing it. <laughs> Seriously, um, almost, almost makes losing a sister worthwhile. Um, and then <laughs> says an only but child. Then, yeah. Hey, man. Hey, what do I know? I'm just I'm I'm talking about shit I have no frame of reference for, <laughs> as I so often do on this podcast. Um, but so then also Jack is there, you know, her ex-husband, Senator Jack, with the the other woman who he has since married, Melanie. Yeah. So, A, I don't know how it's constructive to have these like both of them in this hearing who clearly have animosity and hate each other. Also, the, Melanie is being just a just a total see you next Tuesday in here, <laughs> making all of these sidelong comments about how Patricia Richardson isn't doing a good job raising her son and how Jack's going to be a better parent and that's why he should have custody and yeah. all these things. It's just, um, yeah, and it's just really like, wow, I don't know why your legal counsel thought it would be a good idea for both of you to be in this. Well, so... Uh, this is why I wanted to bring the book out because I feel like the book gives a little more context to the what's happening um, vibe of this movie. So yeah, yeah. And does it describe Melanie's breasts in great detail? I'm gonna. This is the first character introduction that I'm gonna give you here. Uh, so, <laughs> so this scene in the book takes place in a court, not a office. And so mm-hmm. there's a whole like there's a bailiff and everything. The whole point of this scene in the book is to construct the circumstances under which Danny is living so that they can make the case for Laurel's custody. Uh, Melanie is giving testimony as to why, you know, uh, their home uh, post Laurel (laughs) is one fit for Danny to live in. Um, So while she's on the stand, this is the uh, description. Um, A smile from the bailiff whose eyes are glued to Melanie's dress, something more sedate than her usual attire. I've seen her outside the courtroom in a red satin halter top stretched tight as a drum at the bodice. Melanie mm, Vega yeah. is not a big woman, except in the upper regions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's I'm, one. I called it. All <laughs> oh, right. I am told she works with weights to maintain this, a regimen that gives new meaning to the maxim, build it and they will come. She has a complexion. Oh. She has a complexion of a ripe peach. 
clear with the softness of film shot through a silk gaze gauze. Uh, I, I wish I could record the expression on my face right now. It kind of sounds like, oh, oh, oh. She is, are you orgasming right now? Um, no, I'm not. I'm the opposite of that. I'm disgusted. <laughs> she, she is the kind of woman for whom blonde jokes were invented. At 26, she is young enough to be Jack's daughter. The two have been married now for five months, and Jack is starting to show a little wear. He keeps yawning in court, something that makes me think he and Melanie are doing things other than discussing courtroom strategy in the evenings. A man having sex with his wife, the pervert. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the point they're making here is... Uh, in this scene, basically, the the legal strategy of Paul and Laurel is uh, Jack and Melanie fuck so much that they don't know where their teenage son, who is old enough to drive and go and have his own life, where he and, is. And go, at any go given and have time. sex. Go and have sex with his own peach-hued uh, <laughs> uh, billet, and they will come, ladies. Gross. Yeah, uh, that was me making an orgasm noise. Um, <laughs> let's just always clarify it. Let's say <laughs> orgasm as many times as we can on this podcast. Anything That's what the listeners make, really want to hear. Anything that make you uncomfortable. Um... Uh, yeah, so basically, that's that's what the point of the scene is. They're, they're, and it, it works. It seems to, like, Melanie gets flustered in her own comments of uh, saying that they, they fuck too much to really keep tabs on, on Danny. <laughs> also, respect for Senator Jack Vega, a, you know, United States senator who has already undertaken the politically risky move of marrying a substantially younger <laughs> woman, but then also the fact that it's like, even with the busy schedule of a U.S. senator, like one of 100 people in the upper chamber of our legislature, he still has time to pork his new wife so yeah. much that he loses track of his son. I, I mean... Like, respect for his stamina. This is also, I feel like, a pre-Viagra time. I'm just saying. (laughs) Uh, Okay, I think this is a good time to go into who some of these uh, actors are. Uh, I mentioned briefly that uh, Jack Vega is played by Richard Mauser, a longtime character actor, never quite breached the leading man role. Um, I think my first encounter with him was in uh, My Girl. The Macaulay Culkin, mm. uh, Anna Chomsky movie. Um, yeah. The tragic, sad, sad movie that is. Um, but as I got older, clearly the most important thing he's ever done is John Carpenter's The Thing. Of course, of course. Uh, the most important thing <laughs> he's ever done? Perhaps. Um, but he, man, he has he is just uh, killing it. He's still working. Uh, he has 146 credits, man. Uh TV movies, TV movies. Uh, he was in the original TV version of uh, It, the, that two-part um, yeah, yeah, with Tim Curry. And mm-hmm. it had a really just tragic scene in that uh, that stuck with me as a kid. Uh, might have been the first I think- suicide I've seen on, on TV, to be honest with you. I remember that. I think I think there is an entire generation of kids who were traumatized by watching the made-for-TV It, and that was directly the built-in uh, IP audience, which then got the second It made, and was yeah. why it was set in the late 80s, around the time that all of the kids got traumatized by the first It series. I think he spent most of his career from the 80s and 90s playing the, like, square dad to the slightly... Um, uh, wayward teen who gets caught up in a bad circle. I'm thinking uh, License to Drive with Corey Feldman, uh, Risky Business, uh, 
or I should say with the two Corys. Risky Business, uh, he played the father of Tom Cruise who goes out on uh, vacation to let Tom Cruise do his risky business. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is exclusively sliding around on the floors listening to rock music. <laughs> Nothing else. Like, that's the whole risky business. It's just him in his socks and his underwear. The movie's like five minutes long. Oh, my God. Uh, so Richard Mauser, he's a face you recognize. Uh, not in this movie, though. He's playing a slightly... He usually plays like a meek character. Here, he's, he's playing like... A pretty antagonistic villain, and uh, he doesn't have his trademark beard here either. Hmm. Anyway, Richard. I have Mauser. nothing to say about that. I've I've no feelings whatsoever about Richard Mauser's facial hair. What do you have to say about the legend, Brian Dennehy? I uh, you know I, again it is it is uh, I hate to keep mentioning Mystery Science Theater. No, I don't. But I mainly th- throughout the episode <laughs> kept thinking about a Mystery Science Theater riff where there is some character who looks vaguely like Brian Dennehy and some character saying or like one of the guys in the theater saying we place our faith in Brian Dennehy. Um, so that's that's really it. I don't have a lot of Dennehy experience. No? And a lot oh, of the wow. time that Brian Dennehy was on camera, I was thinking, I was told Patricia Richardson would be in this movie. <laughs> I've been sold a false bill of goods. Well, maybe, but, you know, you could do a lot worse than Brian Dennehy, in my personal Look, opinion. I don't want to get into a Dennehy said, Dennehy said about this. <laughs> I just, uh, you know, I, I felt like that was not what I was expecting. Dennehy is the reason, uh, inadvertently, the reason that I'm here with you today uh but your your parents like saw an amorous I brian am, dennehy movie and... i am the son of brian dennehy uh oh, shit <laughs> i'm just kidding i'm bringing that back no he okay so i obviously legend in his own right um he was in tommy boy uh is maybe one of his uh, most yes. recent iconic uh, movies recent I say it's 30 years old but um, that movie is the reason that I went into acting went to Hollywood uh, left <laughs> well I didn't leave Hollywood because of Tommy Boy but I was there because of Tommy Boy and then left because of my own reasons <laughs> Tommy Boy brought you into this world and it took you out of it too <laughs> Uh, so he was near and dear to my heart in that, but he's just appeared in things all through my childhood into my adulthood. Uh, he obviously was the antagonist against Stallone in First Blood, the first obviously. Rambo movie. Uh, he played with Mr. Earl Hinman in Silverado. Oh shit, he was in Silverado. <laughs> I did not, I did not remember this. I was so transfixed by Earl Hinman. He was in the scariest movie that's ever been made. Yeah. Cocoon. <laughs> oh, Cocoon. Again, I've seen a lot of crossover between uh, some character actors we talked about earlier today. Yeah, Cocoon is... I, I watched it recently for the first time in maybe 30 years. Uh, or maybe maybe close closer to 35 when it first came out. Um, there's a moment in that when Steve Gutenberg peers... He's like a Peeping Tom moment <laughs> of the the young woman uh in it and it's yeah. the first time we see the aliens and she peels off her skin and then ah. sees him peeping at her through a pipe and the way it, sh- it just it it has traumatized me and when i rewatched it not that long ago it, it gave me the same spidery feeling up the back of my head that's like this is not right feelings are get the fuck out of here uh yeah so and he plays the, you know, Captain Alien in that movie, so Cocoon. Cocoon, Cocoon. okay. Um, played a voice in Ratatouille. I mean, my God, uh, both of the FX movies. <laughs> Did you ever see those? 
The FX movies? No, I did not. Uh, about the... <laughs> the only FX movies I know are whatever shitty movies FX licensed to show a million times over the course of a couple months. FX. Uh, there's a brief moment in the 80s when they were trying to make Brian Brown, this Australian actor, a thing. Uh, he did FX and he did Cocktail. Um, and then he kind of went the way of Paul Hogan. <laughs> but uh, it's basically a movie special effects man is hired. I'm reading the IMDb synopsis is hired to fake a real live mob killing for a witness protection plan, but finds his own life in danger. Uh, and obviously hmm. Brian Dennehy plays the, uh, the cop that's working with him in there. Um, but Dennehy man, he's a theater actor. He, he is uh, most hailed as uh, the person who has most, uh, is most aligned with Eugene O'Neill's plays. And that's his only Golden Globe is when he won uh, for a TV movie of Death of a Salesman from um, Arthur Miller's play. So mm-hmm. he, he's a legend of the stage. And a legend of the fall. <laughs> he was not in Legend of the Fall, though. Well, okay, legend of the stage at least. Okay, okay. He, All right, it, so that's he had a memorable episode on Thirty Rock playing a union leader. Uh, I don't know if you remember that one. Don't remember. Wait, is he the wait? Is he the guy on Sandwich Day who brings him the sandwiches? Uh, I don't. Yes, yeah, yeah, he is. Oh, okay, yeah, Sandwich Day. Oh, Dennehy, of course, Brian Dennehy. That's my Brian Dennehy experience. <laughs> um, oh my god. Uh, yeah, they get in the drinking contest, and now I remember. Yes, 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 uh, yes, yes. Last I'll mention, I mean, you could go, we could spend 18 years just on his filmography, but uh, he was also, we already have, he was also in Baz Luhrmann's uh, Romeo and Juliet, and they kind of filled out some of the the roles in that when they were playing, so he plays a Montague, but he plays Ted Montague. (laughs) (laughs) The faithful adaptation of the uh, Shakespearean original. Anyway, I just found that funny. So that's hey, our that's our. What's up? Actor. I'm Zach Hamlet. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. That sounds like it might be a young pop star. Hey, I'm Gary Andronicus. What's up? <laughs> hey, Frank Lear. How you doing? I'm the king. <laughs> Frank Lear sounds like he owns a car dealership. Um, oh, they. Oh, no, nobody calls me Richard. I'm Dick the Third. How's it going? <laughs> Okay, so uh, Brian Dennehy, Richard Mauser, we know Patricia Richardson. Let's get back to the scene. Um, Stan we, Prospero, welcome to my island. How about that tempest? Huh? We uh, we finish the um, the divorce proceedings or the custody hearing proceedings, and we are in the lobby uh, shortly thereafter. An important scene, which will come into play, I think, uh, a little bit more in the second half. Where mm. uh, Laurel and uh, Melanie have a little bit of a run-in. Uh, yes, Melanie is continuing to be high-octane, just terrible, just blatantly awful with her peach-hued whatever and her build-it-and-they-will-whatever. But she's <laughs> she makes some some sidelong comment—like, they, they run into each other as, as both parties are on their way out. She makes some sidelong comment to Patricia Richardson— who then begins hitting her with her purse, and a yeah. security guard has to break them up. I also wrote to the down point, at this point the, Mel- the, to the point where I mean, she swings her purse at her head like she's going to take it off, and Melanie yeah. blocks it with her own purse, and both purses spill open, and a, a purse bailiff, wars. <laughs> a bailiff comes over and helps them clean up literally everything that has fallen to the floor. 
Yes, yes. And I, I, I wrote down at this point that the mistress in this, Melanie, is completely the sort of role that Jenna Maroney would play on 30 Rock <laughs> and would be bragging about. As a parody about. of this, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, already her, her she her roles in movies like The Rural Juror and things on Thirty Rock <laughs> right. are like she's already carved out a niche as the person in shitty airport legal thrillers. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so they, uh, you know, it's this whole argument about who's going to be a better parent, and their argument is that no, because their son has stolen a car or been involved with a car theft in the time that she's been living with him. Yeah. Clearly, she is an unfit parent. Uh, and, but uh, but the the way that that unfolds, which c- becomes important, is that we learn that um, she's a shitty parent, but he's fit because he's a politician and used his influence to get him out of it uh, by you know, his, his com- political ties. His completely due influence, his totally one hundred percent due influence. And I want to just go into a quick description of uh, Steve Martini's description of Jack Vega. Um, yes. How big are his boobs? <laughs> well, we'll find out. Uh, their father, Jack, uh, again, two kids in the book, one kid in the movie. Uh, Jack is that uh, is of that political ilk of the southern part of the state who has lived for a decade like one of those barons of yore, members of, of a political class who believe they invented privilege and still hold the patent. If money... <laughs> Is the mother's milk of politics. Jack has nurse's lips to a purple hue. Why is it all about boobs? Why? I mean, I like boobs as much as, if not more, than the next guy, and this is making me really uncomfortable. It continues. According to no. the electoral records, he's tickled the udders of various special interests for more than half a million dollars in the last six months. This money is no doubt... Uh, This is money he no doubt intends to put in his pocket. Uh, (laughs) Term limits in this state now have politicians eating their elders. Jack has run for Congress, blah, blah, blah. Uh, So there you go. There's your Freudian description of Jack. (laughs) Jack has been motorboating the electoral process for years. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. Um, Okay. I, I'm I, I I'm sorry. So okay, there's the fracas in the lobby. They yeah. leave. They um, do leave. And Patricia Richardson and Brian Dennehy go back uh, to uh, back to Patricia Richardson's house. Yep. Their son arrives riding up on a motorcycle. Or no, yeah. he's already there, I guess. But he they you're, get not, after... you're not wrong in your emphasis of going. He has a motorcycle. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So you know, they're they're there. They have a, they talk with the kid about how hey, you getting mixed up with that bad crowd and stealing the car is really fucked with our uh, child custody case. And then, uh, so Brian Dennehy has to go have dinner with uh, his daughter. That has to wants to go have dinner with his daughter who's <laughs> grieving. Well, he uh, has to because the script says he does. The script says he does. Well, also <laughs> my, good my fatherhood. Note, suggests. My note was, uh, Paul has to leave to have dinner with his sad little girl daughter. Yes. Yes, as opposed to all those boy daughters. I mean, well, look, I mean... You know. I mean, I was trying to hit home the idea that they're really just driving that nail into the coffin of, isn't, isn't he so pitiful uh, that yes. he, he has to deal with this all on his own? And and then likewise, uh, the son has to, you know, he's got dinner plans as well, so he gets mm-hmm. on his fucking motorcycle that he has... <laughs> And rides off to do yeah. that. But not, not before, I, which was an important point of him saying that he is not ever 
going to live with his dad. He will not yes. do it. Fuck you, dude. Yes. Mo- middle finger in the air, sunglasses on, driving off into the sunset on his motorcycle. Backflips onto his motorbike. Yeah, he like, <laughs> you know, he, he loves Patricia Richardson. Who doesn't? Yeah. I mean, he loves his mom. He's, he's like a nice enough kid, but he hates his dad the way we, the audience, are supposed to and refuses to live with them. Yeah. So uh, anyway, he, then, Brian Dennehy goes yeah. home. No, and he, has, he, this is going to slide off your brain. And this is why I wanted to have the movie playing in the background while we do this, because this is a scene that is important, but is such a what the f- what happened? What is this? scene that is going to come into play so much more importantly later on on his way home to dinner he stops at a diner and sidles up to a guy at the counter who we have no context for we haven't seen this guy yet he asks for a favor about danny because danny recently in addition to his past record is now tied up in some more legal stuff uh you know petty things with a, a rogue gang of kids and yes, he's asking urchins. this weird guy at a counter who's drinking a beer <laughs> if he can pull a favor for him. Uh, yeah. And I just the questions are like, who is this guy? What is he doing? How did you know he's here? Uh, I, I don't have answers to any of these, but it, it comes into play later. So it needed to be mentioned that this happens. <laughs> This this guy this guy looks vaguely like Kendall Roy from Succession if he had been like I don't know like just just dragged through some gravel for a while like he looks yeah. like a much worse more rundown version of Kendall Roy. I'm not gonna go um, into his filmography, but he is a, a prolific character actor. 128 credits, Trografasi, uh, uh, playing almost this character in everything he's ever done. That's good. Find your niche and live in it. Uh, so after this scene of asking yeah. a guy to do a thing, Brian Dennehy goes home. He interacts mm-hmm. with his daughter who thinks that fractions are gross. He think he interacts with his cool black housekeeper. Which um, is a, a machination just for the movie because one thing the book does not address is he's leaving his daughter all of the time. <laughs> and I think yes. as soon as they started making the movie, it's like, who is this daughter? Who's looking after her? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so, okay, that's a good, that's a, I guess, a good piece of shoe leather, I suppose, that there's <laughs> yes. a, there's someone there, like, no, he's not a, he's not a shitty parent, he's, uh, he's fine, he's, he's, he's cool. Um, yeah, explains to his daughter about how her dead mom is always watching her, which would not make me feel better, but who, what do I know, I haven't lost a parent. And, <laughs> not uh, particularly religious. Um, this is a scene that really feels, uh, pandering. Like, it, it knows its yep. audience and really just wants to hit home. Like, we understand the family values of the people who watch this stuff. So let's just make sure we shoehorn this in there so that yes, they know of exactly who this character is appealing to. Yes, he believes in God, moral majority, uh, you know, etc. Yep. Newt Gingrich approves. Uh, so <laughs> then he's woken up by a midnight phone call yes. that, oh shit, Melanie dun, dun, got dun. murdered. First commercial break. Yeah. Uh, and the phone call and- is from Clem, the guy that was in the diner, um, who, okay, here's, okay, I'm not going to go into his character description because he's not that big of a character, but Clem is basically a radio dispatcher for the police station. He's he's tapped oh. into the police, which is why he has this information. He's one of these characters that exists purely to move things along. And thank God. Mm. <laughs> we need yes. one of those for this podcast. Yes, yes. Uh, as as Kermit and Fozzie said, moving right along. And then <laughs> they sing the banjo part, jungle jung, jungle jung. 
Um, uh, so, so yeah, he, yeah, he calls and says, yeah, says that uh, Melanie's been dead. You better get over here. Uh, and Paul, in the middle of the night, uh, drives over to Vegas. Oh, I mean Vegas. V- Vegas, yes. There, <laughs> I forgot the apostrophe not... in my notes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the bright lights, the cowboy jerking his thumb over his shoulder, showgirls, Penn and Teller, Celine Dion, Britney yeah. Spears briefly. Uh, <laughs> so, so he arrives in Clem, uh, this guy. Uh, is the one that, like, gets him through the police line. Like, you know, that's got to be a scene if you don't have a character that's just going to, like, make it all of one second. So, yeah. I, I one day aspire to be... Well, I guess I don't aspire to this, but you, I, there are so many movies and TV shows where, like, oh, a crime scene. I'm not a cop or connected to the investigation, but they all know me, so they just let me into the crime scene. I feel like the defense attorney would yeah. have a field day with the fact that some outsider is contaminating your fresh-ass crime scene. A little bit. Um, the, I got questions about this crime scene, too, because holy shit. Uh, oh, God. The, the biggest crime in this house is the art that they have hung up on the walls. Oh, my God. Well, okay. That's, let, a, that's like a whole Two snaps in a circle. Um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but so he he gets there. There's a you know a gaggle of folks outside. A couple people outside mentioning, "Oh, we we just moved in across the street. We thought this was a safe neighborhood. And now there's been a murder. Seems like that's not going to come back in any way. Forget those people. They won't matter." <laughs> um, but he goes in, and uh, and I guess you know one of well, not, the not before we are introduced to Gene Smart. Uh, it's it's oh, such yes, a passing thing. They don't make a big deal out of. Uh, what should be important character introductions. So um, yes. this, I mean, the reason I'm stopping is because the whole movie predicates on this moment uh, where yes. he's outside the police line looking in and Jean Smart comes over. She just happened to be a few houses down uh, that I guess the Vegas uh, is her neighbor. Uh, she works for the FBI, which is not explicitly stated here. It is um, not, no. And as they're talking... Um, uh, you know what? I'm going to save her character introduction in the book uh, for the restaurant scene. Um, two two kind of passersby come by and say, "I thought this was a safe neighborhood." Um, and it's it's such a fleeting moment, and it's it's meant to be. Uh, it is in the book, but at least in a novel, like you don't have the visual aspect to you know differentiate. You know, characters from a crowd. So, you know, if they mention something in a book, that those characters are going to come into play. This in the movie, they make it like they there's no indication that these two characters are people we need to remember. Yeah. Yeah. It is, it, they seem very much like throwaways. Yeah. But they're not. They're, they're the key to this whole movie uh, because these are the Merlots. These are the people who, uh, spoiler alert for a little bit later in the episode, they're searching for and find that they've moved out of the house. Yes. And uh, you know what? They're they're basically non-characters, so I'm not going to go into the book description. So um, we, we, we so, can just we can just rest assured that they both that like either the woman has huge boobs and that the man's <laughs> career is somehow <laughs> described through uh, analogies involving breasts. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, but they're important because they're they're concerned about the safety of the neighborhood and uh, they they don't know what's going on. They get they're basically scared. They're they're scared. Yes. They're scared, Truman. Yes, they're they're <sighs> it's it's very scary. And Brian Dennehy Moves into the crime scene. He finds out that the lead detective yeah. on the case is some detective who hates him, whose last name happens to be Llama. That's funny. <laughs> Jimmy, uh, and Jimmy Llama. Uh, I do want to just mention his real quick because uh, the smile on Jimmy Llama's face is nothing less than sinister. 
Llama's most dominant feature is his blockhouse build. Llama is square, from the angle of his jaw to what is left of the hair on his head, leveled by shears to a flat top. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay. I mean, honestly, I feel like the casting could have hewed a little closer to that description, because I like the idea of this basic, this Lego man walking around, this evil Lego detective. Um... Yeah. But De- Detective Llama leads him in, is walking mm-hmm. him through the house full of cops. There are basically huge tapestries hanging in the spiral staircase entry yeah. hall, like, but like Basquiat abstract art yep. tapestries. Just, just, I mean, with all due respect to Basquiat, these are bad. Um, <laughs> My m- main thing is the Basquiat of police officers littering the crime scene, where it's like, this happened maybe an hour ago. Uh, it doesn't seem like there is any control over making sure nothing is tampered with, that nothing is contaminated. I mean, there has to be 30 or 40 officers inside the home. Well, yeah, with all the police investigating, this is bound to be a real Basquiat case. So, uh, <laughs> as they, I mean, I agree, it is a huge, it is a huge number of just randos yeah. stumbling around, including Brian Dennehy. We find, <laughs> uh, we are, we are shown, uh, Melanie lying uh, in the bathtub in yep. uh, in her nighty with a bullet hole in her head, and then yeah. Detective Which, Llama. Yeah, Llama. He's he is like he's playing it straight out of like old film noir. He sounds like Dan Duryea. Uh One of his lines is like, "Hey, she's looking pretty good, except for that hole in her head." Yeah, <laughs> as he's like chewing yeah. gum. <laughs> it's it's on par with the with the stereotypical TV morgue attendant who is always eating a roast beef sandwich <laughs> while standing over the dead body. Just there's certain things that you always get. Yeah. Pervy evil cop talking about how sexy the dead lady is. <laughs> um and then he also uh shows Brian Dennehy on like a TV that they have there, the CCTV footage from earlier that night but of not, Patricia Richardson. Not until uh Jack appears from the shadows. Like a puma yes. and attacks like Brian Denny. <laughs> yes. Because uh, he thinks Laurel did it and he's associating Paul with being her lawyer. So I guess by proxy, attack Paul, attack Laurel. Yeah. He's one of those <laughs> black ops ninja assassin yeah. senators. And I, I want to mention before we get to the CC footage, uh, through this whole thing, Jimmy Lama is, I mean, he's. A, like a slimy asshole, yes. But he's specifically a slimy asshole to Paul because they have a history, uh, and a very bad history, because Paul got him kicked off the detective force, and now he's, you know, uh, stuck doing this shitty recon work. Um, so I, I only mention that because it's also not... <laughs> I'm doing the heavy lifting of the movie, which didn't do it very well, because it comes into play in the second half of this movie. Thank you, Lena. This is truly the only way to experience uh, uh, undue influence. <laughs> so, um, oh, I'm sorry. Also, one other piece of, of weird jargon that gets thrown in here a couple times is Detective Llama says this, and then some other people say it later, it, that Patricia Richardson's uh, character, quote, drilled Melanie, which is their way of saying she killed her. But in my head, it always just sounds like he's saying they had sex. I, I don't know. <laughs> Dr- drilling to me... She- I, I, She's the driller killer, is, man. This is directed by I, Abel Ferrara. <laughs> this episode is getting low-key hornier than I want it to, and it's really, I think, against <laughs> our will. It's just it's just Steve Martini brings a certain uh, uh, oozy, uncomfortable sexuality to everything. Um, 
but yeah, so they show they they look at CCTV footage from mm-hmm. the house. I don't know why the investigators are showing this to the presumptive defense attorney. It seems <laughs> like this wouldn't be. But anyway, footage of Patricia Richardson well, cause he, arguing. He, yeah, Llama's so you know high on his hubris that he's like, we're going to show you you don't have a case. She's going to jail. She did this fucking thing. We have her on TV, and the footage shows her arguing with Melanie about an hour and a half before the murder took place. Uh, they have a heated exchange, which is silent because it's CCTV. And then moments later, she returns and throws a uh, potted plant at the uh, TV footage camera and basically takes it out. Um, yeah. So, you know, we get to see some uh, pantomime, angry pantomime by Patricia Richardson here. Yes, which is great. She sells it, uh, a true professional. <laughs> and so, yeah, this looks this looks pretty bad. This is generally not the sort of thing that you want to have uh, on tape when you're, when you're going to be defending someone. So Dennehy leaves the crime scene. He goes back to his house where Patricia Richardson's son is waiting for him, and he's very upset. No one can find Patricia Richardson. She's not at home. The police are looking for her. Like, nobody knows where she is. And her son can't account for where she was during, at the time of the murder. Nobody yeah. really knows where she was. And, and uh, uh, they, they are saying, well, okay, a few things here. One is... Um, Dennehy and his lawyer jargon are saying that they're going to get her on murder seven, which is premeditation. Uh, uh, or actually, no, Lama's saying if she killed her in the heat of the moment, like if if she killed her while she was on the CC footage, it would have been heat of the moment, murder seven, uh, which is, you know, that legal jargon. <laughs> legal jargon to make people feel smart. Uh, but what actually happened is murder 13, which is premeditation, which means she went back home, got her piece, came back, and knew that she was intending to kill her. So they are like, they're out for blood here. Uh, and yeah. I think I think they should have quit making sequels to Murder After Murder 4. That was really the, the <laughs> like last good one in the series, as far as I'm concerned. And my last note here was, you know Dennehy is the uh, hero here, because the true 90s hero, because he's wearing blue jeans and sneakers, uh, you know, as he's doing his sleuthing. Yes, exactly. the 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 working class uh, the working class hero yeah. uh, lawyer. Um, <laughs> and then yeah, he does go back home. Danny jumps out of the bushes. Uh, you know, apparently that's a thing with the Vegas. They just jump out of the shadows at you. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> it's in their blood. They can't help it. Uh, but yeah, the point of that scene is that uh, Danny doesn't genuinely doesn't know where Laurel is. Uh, she uh, disappeared. Yeah. So he, but I, I love so there's something I think this actor uh, playing Danny is uh, really trying to go for something that doesn't quite come off. I think he's like aiming for a James Dean sort of deal, this kind of brooding teen, as, as so many young actors are, because uh, he has this line here where he goes, "What's going to happen to her? Come on, Paul, I'm not a kid. What's going to happen to her?" <laughs> I put a little more stink on it than I needed to, but I, I think, well, but so did he. So there you go. It's just it's, <laughs> it's just, just accumulating kind of stank. stank. Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, but um, it, it, we learned that Danny doesn't know shit. Yes, and so from here, you know, we get Dennehy back in court where he tells the judge that he's going to continue uh, fighting the uh, fighting for Patricia Richardson to get custody of her son, and the judge's wig flies off of her head and her monocle <laughs> pops out of her eyeball what? and falls into her champagne but your but your client is wanted for murder clearly this won't help your case uh, which but, is like a scene that doesn't need to be here because we're on to bigger and worse things now 
Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, the, the the custody hearing seems like pretty small potatoes at this yeah. point. Um, it's one so of then, those goes I... without saying scenes. Uh, yes, and we go to uh, Paul's office next, and this one I feel like requires a little bit of description because mm-hmm. you take me through what you think is happening here, and then I'll I'll fill in the blanks. Um, let's see. Uh. I think I just wrote down boring lawyer shit because I didn't really pay attention. <laughs> well, we're introduced to a character uh, by the name of Harry, and there's no pomp or circumstance to this guy's introduction like there isn't with any character in this movie. Um, this turns out to be Paul's kind of partner. Uh, he works down the hall. His name's Harry Hines. Uh, in the book, he's named as... Uh, Heinz is almost 20 years my senior, a fixture of the legal community in the city, a balding head and a nose like Carl Madden's. <laughs> uh, he has done some heavy-duty criminal work in his day and now talks a lot about retirement. Those who know him well tell me that Harry has been talking about retirement since he passed the bar 40 years ago. Uh, his, the, his, his legal work was as heavy-duty, heavy as a <laughs> pair of breasts hanging in a large bra. <laughs> uh what we really need to know about this guy, he's not cast as the older, you know, the senior to Brian Dennehy. He's definitely like Anthony LaPaglia would have played him in the, like, theater version of this movie. Um, yes. But he's, you know, basically just a fast talk and foul mouth logic. His character is to pose the devil's advocate to anything Brian Dennehy that Paul brings up in this movie. It's just like, yeah, uh, Laurel's innocent. We have to go here. Uh, yeah, will you ever think maybe she's guilty? Yeah, he, he basically this character basically exists as just somebody for Brian Dennehy to talk to, so yes. we the audience know what's going on. He is just yeah. a receptacle for, you know, uh, he's, he's just a, a straw man to every argument. He just represents the kind of mainstream like, hey, she killed him. Ah, what are you gonna do? Yeah, and that's what that's what he's this scene's about. He's going, uh, how do you know she didn't kill her? And Paul's like, well. Uh, he goes, well, okay, you, you don't know that she didn't kill her. What do you know about her? And he goes, well, I don't know her that well, but I know she's a terrific mother. And there's just the logic to this is is confusing to me. It's yeah, his sister-in-law like, together. Well, so he knows her and he's willing to take Danny in, but he doesn't know her well enough to know whether it's just the, the logic here is uh, killing me. I, I at mean. The we know she's a terrific mother from her work on Home Improvement. It's really Patricia Richardson's <laughs> acting and her career doing she's, the heavy lifting here. Yeah, um, she's, she's a career cast for sure. Yes. So, but anyway, after this, he goes and he starts asking around at Patricia Richardson's health club, like trying yeah. to figure out where well, she is. Important, well, these two scenes, neither of them really make much sense. So a little clarity in that the point of the scene is that he's talking about whether or not he's going to take on the murder case in addition to the custody trial. And his partner's trying to talk him out of it because it's a dead end case. She's going to go to jail. And he goes, well, I don't know about that. I made a made a promise to my dying wife that I'd take care of her. So I think I, I should do this, even though I'm not a murder judge or a lawyer. I just do yeah. custody cases. So anyway, yeah. that's why he, he decides in that moment he's going to take on the case. Goes to the yeah. squad, the athletic club uh, to see if they can find more information about her. Yeah, and... and- we get the second she, of the most contrived things in this movie. 
that that she just happens to call the club hoping yes. that he'll be there to pick up. Yeah. He he's talking to one of her employees and he's like, the did Laura call? And she's like, Yeah, she's called a couple times, but she didn't really say much, didn't say where she was. Honestly, it sounded like she wanted to talk to you. And it's like how, how do you, how know do you even know who the fuck what he is? is? <laughs> yeah. I, w- I want to talk to my brother-in-law, the lawyer who's <laughs> representing me in a child custody case. You, my you, my secretary at the health club, would know this. I talk to you about yeah. it all the time. And then the very next shot is like Brian Dennehy, uh, Paul, has been waiting I don't know how long. And then the phone rings. Another employee answers it. And it turns out to be her calling, thanking God that Paul figured out what she was doing. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like, if yeah. Paul didn't go and visit the athletic club, how would he even know that she was calling there? It's not like they're going to call him and go, we've been getting weird calls from someone that won't give their name. I think they're for you. <laughs> yeah, you know, just we just get the vibe from it that, that, that they want to talk to you. Yeah. Um, okay, writing, anyway, it's, it, writing aside, I want to. this is the first big moment I want to call out for Patricia Richardson's uh, performance here. Um, yeah. I think this is where she really shines is when she's playing desperate. Uh, mm-hmm. she's having this phone call in a, um, unmarked phone booth. We don't know where she is. Yeah. Uh, basically telling him Danny cannot be seen. He, he can't go stay at, at Jack's. He can't stay yeah. at his father. I want you to get him out of town. I got a friend just, you know, get him out of there. He's not a part of this, you know? Um, and you could, you could hear her voice shaking a little bit. I think it's a really remarkable, uh, uh, nuanced performance in this scene. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it's good. Like, my biggest issue with this movie, well, I don't know, I have a number. <laughs> it's, it's There's really not a lot of Patricia Richardson in it, and yeah. uh, when, especially when you are watching a movie specifically because it has Patricia Richardson in it, and then there's not that much Patricia Richardson, it does great a little bit. But the scenes that she has, she does really well with the material she's given. Like, the, yeah. like yeah, she's very convincingly desperate, and like saying to him... Trying to convince Dennehy basically to get her son, take him to the airport, put him on a plane so he can go mm-hmm. out of the country, and she's got arrangements made for him elsewhere. And Brian and, Dennehy is saying, no, that's illegal as shit. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and maybe it's because I read the book and know what she's doing here that it, it I can see the a little bit more of what she's putting into this. But there's there's this like extra layer that she's weighing about sacrificing herself versus saving her son and... Like there's this all this unspoken stuff into this performance that I think is just chef's kiss. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, yeah. She's. Uh, I I just wish she had more opportunities to be yeah. chef kissingly good. Um, um, the main thing though is that she's asserting to him, "I didn't kill Melanie. I didn't do it. Get get Danny out of there. Don't let him go to Jack's. I didn't do it. I don't know who did. Yeah. Peace out, bro." Yeah, and she hangs up before uh t- before he can ask where she is. Yeah. So. From there, Dennehy then goes and winds up meeting with uh, Senator Vega for drinks at yep. uh, at the state or at the I don't know his office or at wherever. Vega's right. office, which looks like the cover to a John Grissom novel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, seriously, it's like they they t- <laughs> they they took they took imagery from John Grisham and put it in a Steve Martini novel or yep. in a Steve Martini movie. They wanted to get uh, <laughs> kind of all of the airport legal thrillers into one cinematic universe. Um, <laughs> But the so scene, just this one scene, like Tarantino did in Sin City, just this one scene was written by James Patterson too. <laughs> yeah, the, the, all the nerds on Ain't It Cool News got really excited <laughs> about this. Um, uh, so as yeah. as Vega and Paul are talking, 
uh, Vegas sits down and they make a big deal, uh, showing us a, a close up of a, a wire that he's wearing. I thought it was a gun, to be perfectly honest. Um, I, I mean, it's it's cl- like it's the like sort of mic setup that like you wear when you're being interviewed in a documentary. So it's like clipped to his belt, <laughs> right. a big battery pack, and he's supposedly trying to surreptitiously record. Uh, Brian Dennehy in this situation, but Brian Dennehy <laughs> just clearly notices it. Yeah, I, but and I want to just point out because it made me laugh so hard when Dennehy, Dennehy notices it. He, his reaction, as great of an actor as he is, he really he he like he shifts his eyes away, like he just accidentally saw a <laughs> Vegas shorts if he was wearing like too short of shorts and like accidentally saw his testicles, like. <laughs> It was a really, like, I'm sure it happened a lot on Cocoon with Steve Gutenberg, but, um, Senator Vegas, this is, this is Steve Martini describing that scene. Senator Vegas testicles hang, (laughs) hang fallow like a, like a, like an old man's brain in a, wrapped in a cheesecloth. Oh my God. Gross. (laughs) Um, but, uh, yeah, they're talking and basically Vega wants Danny home. He, he's like, he belongs with me, you know, he, Laurel is a fugitive from the law. No one knows where she is. She's not safe. She probably killed Melanie. He he belongs home with me. Yes. Yes. And, you know, uh, Dennehy is not, you know, he kind of just gets out of there without making a firm commitment either way because he knows that he's being yeah, recorded to on say a wire. That Danny is uh, having dinner with them tonight. And he goes, okay, well, then immediately after. And he yes. goes, okay, sounds good. See you later. Bye. Bye. <laughs> And walked uh, out the door. Yeah. And so then next we've got Patricia Richardson at her motel where she's like, she's walking back to her motel room and we're getting just the ultimate nineties made for TV movie, kind of jazzy trumpety saxophony (laughs) music of her walking across a wet parking lot at night. She goes back and, yeah, no, mine is Landon's was better. Mine was a little too, too up tempo, (laughs) a little chipper. But she's, uh, yeah, she goes back in her room. She's got a towel soaking in, I get what we later find out is bleach in the sink. It's a, Why a bath is that? rug, yes. It's, a, yeah. it's a, a bath rug being bleached in the hotel sink. Yes. And wait, before we can wonder what that is, a bunch of cops burst in and arrest her. How did it happen? We don't know. Uh, who who yeah. turned her in? The, and I'm not going to lie, I, I had a little bit of a reflexive reaction to watching police officers point a gun at my beloved Jill Taylor. Uh, yes, of course. I'm like, no, what are you doing? This is wrong. Don't do this. <laughs> Stay away from her. She is innocent <laughs> until proven guilty. Um, but she immediately complies, gets down on her hands and knees, and uh, gets cuffed. And, man, watching Jill Taylor get cuffed was weird. Uh, oh, the only thing weirder is then in the following scene where Brian Dennehy is meeting with her in jail and she's wearing a prison yeah. jumpsuit. Well, Jill we're, is worth mentioning, uh, just because, you know, we got to keep track of the characters. This is uh, uh, the most boring chessboard that's ever existed. But yes, <laughs> uh, parallel edited with the scene is uh, Paul, Danny and their daughter uh, eating dinner. Danny gets a question from Sarah that makes him get up from the the table in a huff and goes into the living room and starts watching TV. And then all of a sudden, like this is national news. (laughs) Everybody. The the live arrest of Laurel Vega uh, is broadcast from wherever the fuck she is to wherever the fuck they live. (laughs) Virginia. 
It is, uh, it is, like, this is across time zones also. Like, it's substantial, like, it's dinner time in Virginia, but it's also dark in Reno. So are they having a very late dinner? I I don't know. I don't understand. I don't, I don't understand any of this. But, um, yeah, basically Danny sees Laurel get arrested on TV uh, in a very, what I have to imagine would be a traumatic moment. Um, uh, which only comes into play. Like I said, this is the chessboard. We have to keep track of the pieces because it plays into what Danny does later. So, yes, yes. And, uh, yeah, so then um, then he goes to meet with her in jail where we get <laughs> Shawshank. I, I mean, like, was this – it almost looked like a maximum security prison. Hey, I mean, look, she's uh, – they, they all know how feisty uh, Jill Taylor is. You got to yeah, – they know that Tim is going to come and try and break her out. Barbed like wire a, snipers. Yep. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, Pamela Anderson is up there with her spiked stilettos guarding the <laughs> guarding the walls. Yeah. Um, but you're right. But, so, yeah, the next jarring thing was that Patricia Richardson walks out uh, to speak to Brian Dennehy in the conference room or, you know, whatever room, uh, wearing a blue jumper. Yes. <laughs> and she has a certain weirdly Holly Hunterish energy in this scene in the prison. It's the I, Texas, I don't it's it's the uh, the Texas draw. That's probably what it is. And the fact that she is noticeably shorter than Brian Dennehy, which also <laughs> makes me most think people of Holly are, Hunter. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> um yeah, but she in this in this prison like she just kind of reiterates that yeah, I went to the house, we had an argument, and then I left, and she refuses to tell him anything else. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and she's like I didn't kill her and I have a friend who's who will uh, will take Danny? She doesn't want Danny in the house. I mean, she's basically reiterating everything they said in the previous phone call. I feel like this could have gone in a little bit of a more uh, expositional direction than rehashing the, everything. But yeah, this was once again. This was when I made my first note of uh, this role is underwritten for Patricia Richardson. <laughs> like it's not but enough is, that she's yeah n- not in it very much. But also, it's like okay, so now you're just doing a se- like. All of your like her character is, I think, one of the most interesting characters in this thing. Mm-hmm. And the most of the time she's talking is, is just like I didn't do it, and then getting very angry at Brian Dennehy yeah. for not believing her that she didn't do it when she's acting incredibly guilty. And this is why I went into the whole tirade at the beginning of the episode about airport novels. Uh, this feels like this scene particularly feels victim to that sort of writing where you just get reiterated details and assertions over and over and over and over again because people don't pay attention to the words you're reading. Yeah. <laughs> so you have to just say them multiple times so that you get it. And, you know, I feel like adapting this for the uh, screen, they could have been a little more uh, judicious with that sort of repetition and done something more. Like, this would have been a really moving scene. And, I and you know, as you said, Patricia Richardson does what she can with this. But it is like... I don't want Danny there. I didn't do it. You don't believe me. Why don't you believe me? This is over. Fuck you. I'm walking back. Yeah. You're not my exactly. lawyer anymore. Yeah. Which also at first I thought like, wait, is she just in county jail in Reno? So did Brian Dennehy fly from Virginia to Reno <laughs> to talk to her for two minutes and then have her walk out on him? Because that's a dick move, if so. Well, yeah, I, I don't think we really get an answer to that. I mean, he might have. No, but, um, I Based on the amount of time he's spending at the jail, I think she's been extradited to Virginia. Oh, that the would most, make sense, yeah. The most boring, uh, quibbling, factual debate in an already fairly boring piece of content. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, and then this is another place where my notes are just like, 
talks with more lawyers and stuff. This is boring as shit. Yeah, I see where you you've you've checked out. That's I broke watching this into two halves, and I I smart. This is just starting my second watch, so I had really renewed smart. energy here. He goes back Good. to his office and he's talking to his not partner Harry, um, and he's you know this is as you said earlier, him just talking out loud to himself and having a guardian angel, you know, and basically an invisible man, a Harvey, if you will, uh, <laughs> giving him devil's advocate saying, well, uh, you know, you'd be crazy if you, uh, you took this case. Oh yeah. Speaking of that, any chance of an insanity plea? And his partner's like, I don't know. Is there any chance pigs can fly? Uh, and he starts, you know, reiterating the details of the case. Man, she was bleaching a rug that was in the Vega bathroom when Melanie was killed. She also has Melanie's compact. This case is sealed tight. You, there's no way to win. He's like, oh, well, I better go talk to the DA to get a plea deal. And so we go to the DA's office where Paul meets the prosecutor uh, who will come into play in the second half of the movie uh, in the courtroom part where. Oh, boy. Courtroom stuff. <laughs> Cannot wait for that. <laughs> This is going to be a special kind of torture for you. Um, and she's like, have you seen the case? So he's, he's asking for a deal. He's like, listen, okay, I'm going to put all my cards on the table. She's like, all right, you want cards on the table? I got a fucking full house, bro. No deal. Get out of here. I'm going to win this thing. <laughs> I got a real Casino Royale going right now. I don't even care about it. Uh, and he's like, wow, okay, I've got, I under, I've got an old maid. <laughs> I underestimated your compassion. Uh, I thought because uh, she was a mother that you might uh, think, you know, give me a deal or something. Oh, well, uh, grasping at straws, going to leave. So he goes back home, and this is where we get these scenes peppered in throughout the movie of him talking to his daughter about the mother. And this is just more the same thing reiterated over and over and over again. What do you think about mommy? Is mommy still with us? Uh, you know, you said she'd always be with us. And he's like, yeah, she's always with us. Don't you think she's with us? <laughs> Daddy, just circling back per our earlier conversation, Ari colon mom's whereabouts spectrally. Do you believe that she still exists in a realm in which she watches us constantly? Do you think that she takes shifts or other angels watching over us? <laughs> Again, to to put this on the adaptation, I feel like these scenes would have been better. I, I mean, I, they could have been cut entirely, but I think they would have been better served had they been reiterating the deathbed wish of his mother saying, take care of Laurel so that we if we're going to be reminded of anything, it's like why Paul is at all invested in making sure Laurel is taken care of. <laughs> Daddy, Belinda Carlisle once said that heaven is a place on earth. Could I get your position on that statement? Uh, then we go through some more tropes. Uh, Paul, you know, is up late at night reading. He can't sleep. He reaches over for the empty pillow next to him that his wife used to occupy. But did, did you did you forget hey. that his wife was dead? His wife is, <laughs> we just had a scene. Dead, she'd be there <laughs> with a, with a uh, motherless child. Anyway, uh, we cut to a little bit later. Da even still, Daddy Nietzsche. She's calling from the next room. Daddy Nietzsche said that God is dead. Do you think that God is dead? <laughs> I want to see your version of this movie. Um, he's 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 opens the door of the shower, wrapping himself in a towel, and his daughter is there. Daddy, how can a just God allow for evil in the world? Oh, uh, a little bit later, he still can't sleep, and he's uh, he wakes up with a start. I guess he had a nightmare that we didn't see, and he makes a phone call. 
Um, he needs to get back into the Vega house. He has some uh, some ideas about things and whatnot. And uh, so he, he, he apparently called Harry. Harry meets yes. him at the Vega house. Uh, I, this is couple, I'm oh, sorry. Yeah, this is where my notes come back in as they're arriving at the Vega house. My note is just this whole movie is dudes getting into and out of cars. <laughs> You just you spend a lot of time in this yeah. movie watching Brian Dennehy drive like a Plymouth 93 Chrysler or whatever yeah. up to a house, hauling his self out of the car. Aaron Sorkin had, hadn't made his mark yet, so we only get one walk and talk in this movie. Uh, but we get so many park and talks. We get a lot of park and talks. And so the shot opens with, and I just want to point this out. Uh, it starts with a crane shot. We see the the Vega house. It's craning down. We see the caution tape. And then we just see two children looking on at the Vega house. <laughs> they're not in the movie. We just see the backs of them. I want to know what their story was. <laughs> Are they developing feel- the folklore of, of the neighborhood? Like, this is going to be the creepy old murder house? I, I feel like it's a stand-by-me situation where it's like, you know, they're, they're having a coming-of-age moment where they go and look at the house where a dead body was. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, the, the, you know, not living in a small town in the 50s, it's harder yeah. to just find a dead body that you can go look at. <laughs> so even though we aren't really sure why uh, and what has prompted Paul to start doing his own investigation of the neighborhood, he thinks that someone had to have seen something. Uh, someone, there has to be a witness that can put uh, Laurel away from the time of the murder. So we got to go talk to the neighbors. So he calls Harry. They're going to go start to investigate the neighbors. They, you know, start with the most cliche uh, Snoopy neighbor in the world, Mrs. Miller. Oh, I thought I thought you meant she was sitting on top of a doghouse pretending to be the Red Baron. I understand now. <laughs> She's she's this neighbor who's like giving details and then in between dropping bombshells, she's like, oh, do you want your tea or do you want sugar in your tea? How about, OK, yeah, you know, she wouldn't. Uh, she was the nicest mother in the world. No, I'm not talking about that bitch that he married later. Do you want a cookie? <laughs> I mean, she's she's serving tea, but folks. She's also spilling tea. There is a lot of uh, like the tea isn't the only thing that's hot. So is the goss. <laughs> Those are that's that's all the that's all the wordplay I have for you. So please oh. give us more plot details. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm just trying well, to think okay. of what. Yeah. Okay. So she, basically, I mean, what, what she's reiterating here is that Melanie was the tramp. Laurel yeah. was a good standing character. Nothing wrong with her. You guys. Yes. Like like we don't know that. I mean, it's Patricia Richardson cast on the part. Um, yeah. They go outside and uh, he's like, "Well, what they they kind of regroup. What do we got? Well, nothing yet. Glad we had that scene." <laughs> yep. I, this is where, as they're walking across the street to talk to more neighbors, my note is just, oh, they're going to talk to all the neighbors, huh? Oh, boy. <laughs> I guess they had to get one neighbor in there for this to work, where they're now at the Merlot's house. This is the couple who stopped them uh, in the street, uh, stopped Paul in the street to go, I thought this was a safe neighborhood. What are we doing here if this isn't a safe neighborhood? This um, is the this is the moment at which uh, it, it's like it's like the end of the usual suspects. All the pieces starting to come together, and I realize, oh, there was a reason we saw those people outside. <laughs> this movie has levels. Uh, anyway, not only is no one home, they moved away. Uh, they yeah. see in the window that all the furniture is gone. But Paul, in a very contrived shot, reverse shot, where you know they kind of cheat the geography of these houses, points yeah. to the Vega house and goes. 
there's the there's the window that Melanie was killed in uh, to their bathroom. And they're standing on the lawn. It's like such a like this would not hold up in the court if they were like yeah. from the angle he's pointing at it. And it's like they had to have seen something. It's like also who's standing such... on their lawn at 11 p.m. looking at a bathroom window. <laughs> I, I mean, un- unless you're like a like George McFly peeping Tom type, maybe. <laughs> right, yeah, but. Also, how does he have such a good, like, you've been in Mr. Vega's house presumably once, and you have such a good, like, spatial knowledge of the interior. Like, I've lived in my apartment for nine, nearly ten years, and when I'm standing outside it, I still can't place exactly where in the complex my window is. <laughs> this is a major, this is a large house he's been to one time, and he's like, oh, clearly the bathroom she's murdered in is right up there, and you can look at it from well, here and maybe, see it. Well, maybe more than once. I mean, they have been in-laws for a long time, so maybe they've had a few holiday parties. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So he's been he's been in like the living room. I don't know. We we don't need to. I don't need to take issue with this. I'm just saying it's. it's what very, do you want to take issue with? Uh, we go to the I, court. I, I, want, I want to take wish issue with the way Steve Martini describes women, but that's that's <laughs> okay. another. We've got a big bombshell to get to here because they're going to the court yes. proceedings where they are reading the counts. It's just the judge, the prosecutor, uh, Paul and Laurel, uh, so that they understand what the charges are. And yes. Paul initially just goes, eh, we understand what the charges are. We're going to waive the reading of the indictment. Uh, but Carla, the prosecutor, is like, nah, I think you should hear this. It's something you're not going <laughs> to expect. She she takes so much joy in this. It's just like she's really got to like – I don't know. She's like she's like Nick Cannon in Drumline. Like I added a little something something on the end for you. It's just just so cocky, uh, which goes to more to the character in the book than what they present here in the movie. But uh, when they read it, count one: Laurel did shoot and kill. Yada 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 yada. Blah blah blah. Melanie's dead. Um, it's, it's Jerry's sign. It's Jerry's uh, girlfriend from that episode of Seinfeld. She's dead, Jerry. Dead. Uh, wait. Wait, wait, she yada yada murder? <laughs> Count two did unlawfully take the life of John Doe. What? Like scratch. What? Melanie was five be? months pregnant, and the state is now asking for not life imprisonment, but the death penalty. Now, I, I hope you're going to put like death metal echo on that for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that is, I mean, the death penalty is the most metal way to, um, you know, administer punishment, uh, moral questions aside. I just like to think about, like, like this moment when it landed in the in the show. I mean, what we're watching doesn't have commercial breaks in it, but I was just thinking about, man, what fucking Sears blue light special sale commercial did, did 90s audiences get thrown to right from this revelation? <laughs> What what trailer for the movie Independence Day were you catapulted into from learning this information? Um, so Paul now uh, has a reinvigorated interest because he wants to he has to save Laurel's life because he's the yes. the only person apparently that can do this. Uh, yes. And as a lawyer who's never dealt with a murder case, he's clearly the most qualified. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, er, like earlier in the movie, it's like he's like, I have to, I have to handle this because I have to look out for her. But it's like this is not your, like this is not your area of expertise. You would be so better. It's kind of legal just, malpractice. Yeah. Donate to her fund to get a murder trial lawyer. <laughs> yeah, start an analog '90s GoFundMe, which I guess is just like a telethon. Yeah. Um, but we cut uh, to the restaurant. The way that he's going to help her is he's yes. enlisting the help of Gene Smart, Mrs. FBI. 
that that is that is better than uh sue thomas fbi the other um (laughs) other show directed by the director of this film did you i want to ask you did you at any point in this movie catch what her name is (laughs) uh her name is gene smart love of my life i uh, yeah i mean no i have no idea what her name is dana colby (laughs) dana colby which is an fbi sounding name you can't have a good-looking female FBI agent named Dana in the 90s. We already have one. That claim has been staked by the X-Files. Well, uh, I, I don't know. It was initiated in Ghostbusters. Fair. Fair, I guess. Okay. Uh, well, and all three my are sustained. And, and all three what? Are redheads. Uh, those three ah. characters. Uh, Sigourney Weaver isn't generally a redhead, but... True. Anyway. True. <laughs> Wait, Sigourney Weaver isn't an FBI agent in Ghostbusters. <laughs> thought you'd overlook that. Um, oh, okay. Oh, okay. Well, I'm so, well I, did, I did overrule it, but I'm going to un-overrule it. I'm declaring a mistrial. This is why I don't like legal thrillers, Landon. I'm, <laughs> not, I'm not a very good judge. Here's, uh, here's the situation. Before we get into this restaurant scene, because I feel like the movie does not do a good job of establishing what the fuck their relationship is, Paul and, and Dana what? Colby. One of the few areas this movie does not do a good job, yes. <laughs> so the first time we meet her, which, if you missed it, you know, no blame on you, uh, I, was I mean, I, in I, pitch black I, darkness outside of the murder scene. I, I legit missed it, and this was me knowing that Jean Smart was in the movie <laughs> and looking for her. I did not realize that was her until I talked to you. Like, so, I, I thought this was her first scene in the movie. You thought this was her first scene. No, she was outside. So this is these are important details. I mean, it's going to re- reiterate it the way that, you know, an airport novel would. Jean Smart, playing Dana Colby, works for the FBI. She happens to live a couple houses down from the Vega house. Very, very convenient. She doesn't. Incredibly she now. This is important information. She doesn't know the Merlots. Hmm. If you thought hmm. that pro- pause was pregnant, so was call Melanie. It, call it a Melanie pause. Um, she doesn't <laughs> know the Vegas or the the Merlots. Okay, so we're going to this restaurant scene. He's called her help. Now I want to give a uh, book context for what the fuck their relationship is because how does paul know this fbi agent as a lawyer yes uh they knew each other in law school and now she recognizes him he didn't in the book he didn't initially recognize her but now he does and so that gives context for the uh her character entrance in the book which i'm going to read here saying as we stand and talk uh, recall sets in like chills before a flu. Vague recollections of this woman kicking my ass somewhere in the courtroom. It's been some years since I've seen her. One of a dozen at the university back in the female rush. That was when all the female lawyers were coming in. <laughs> that was when, that was when women started listening to the band Rush in earnest. <laughs> if I remember right, she was one of those whose bones were all dreamed of... Okay, if I remember right, she was the one whose bones we all dreamed of jumping. Oh. Five foot ten, auburn hair, eyes like a shimmering amethyst. We all know what what part is going to make us uncomfortable that we're waiting for. He's working his way down. (laughs) A face like an angel with a body that only God could have made. She has not changed. In the jeans department... (laughs) <laughs> she is what every woman thinks of when men uh, when told that life is unfair. 
Oh my god, I'm sorry. I honestly thought that he said, like, he meant, like, J-E-A-N-S. Like, he was about to talk about the selection of denim shoes. <laughs> Those jinkos she's wearing. Holy cow. Oh god. In the jeans department, those were bugle boy jeans. <laughs> okay. Um yeah, so that's their history. Uh they went to law school together. He wanted to jump her bones then life got in the way. Uh and now they're meeting again. Um hey, however well, many years later. Life got in the way, but life also finds a way, as we also learned in the '90s. Um, and I want to, you know, I want to bestow uh, Steve Martini, um, I guess, like one or two non-creepiness points for not talking in a weirdly verbose way about her boobs. So that's good. <laughs> not her boobs, but um, everything else, maybe. Everything else, sure. I mean, yeah, and I take some of those points away for that. But I mean, I just I was expecting it to get worse, and it yeah. didn't. So the um, scene, uh, they're talking. The she's scene. flirt. She okay. My note was she flirts af. Yes, she totally does, and not just flirts af, but then like even to the point of like, oh, you know, so is this is this a social meeting or do you just want to talk about business? Oh, I'm kind of disappointed. I was hoping it was a it was for social purposes, and it's like yeah, just laying all your cards on the table. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> hey Brian Dennehy, who is who who is not even remotely in my league. I would have had. Se- I thought you wanted to have sex with me, and now that I know, I know. that you don't, I just want to let you know that I still would. I I I I'm gonna take umbrage with with the league thing. Uh, I, I I understand your point about Gene Smart, but Brian Dennehy, listen, man, Dennehy's a Dennehy. I I mean, it's not like he's bad looking. It's just that. Look, it's not like Gene Smart and Brian Denny, there would never be any attraction or she'd never get with a guy like him. It's more just like a woman who looks like Gene Smart doesn't need to be throwing herself at Brian Dennehy because there are dozens of other men throwing themselves at her. True, but she might be throwing herself at Brian Dennehy because she wants to throw herself at Brian Dennehy. I'm, I, you know what, and all I'm saying is that uh, Kelsey Grammer is th- is at the same time most likely throwing himself at her in a series True. of Frasier episodes. Which I th- I would say Dennehy over Frasier. I think I would go Dennehy every time. I, I mean, knowing what we know now about Kelsey Grammer, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Look, Brian Dennehy. Okay. Brian Dennehy is a much better father to his child than Frazier is to Frederick. Like he's actually makes an effort to be present in his child's life more yeah. than once per season. Um, okay, let's get back to the scene. So she's flirting yes. like fuck. She makes it a point of saying, "My ex-husband." Hey, did you know? I'm gonna just drop this on the table here. My ex-husband. Uh, pays for uh, my bill at this restaurant um, in <laughs> the divorce settlement. So yeah, um, he also pays for my birth control pills. <laughs> I got, I, 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 my monthly order of sponges just in case. <laughs> uh, I'm just saying, then he's sponge worthy. So um, <laughs> he's like, yeah, I, I understand you want this to be a social thing, but I got some questions. Uh, I can't get these, these, these couple out of my head. You remember you were there too. They were called the Merlots. They were there. They were a couple. They were asking about the, now she's saying, I don't know who the fuck you're talking about. And I would tend to believe her because who the fuck remembers them from this movie? <laughs> but yeah, they're well, stuck well, in Dennis, Dennis, head, like an obsession. Yeah, it's stuck in his head, stuck in his craw. Also, the fact that their last name is Merlot, I mean, and it, like, that sticks in my mind simply because it's like wine, but I don't know, maybe that's just me. Uh, well, it flowed off my brain like water, but it's stuck in your mind like wine. Uh, so, anyway. so somewhere between us, Jesus got involved in, I guess in so. this uh, <laughs> movie's memory. Yes. 
um uh, so he starts talking he's like okay i can't I, I can't get these merlots out of my head she's like i don't know who the fuck you're talking about sorry and he goes okay well i met with vega the other day uh he was wearing a wire which means he's cooperating with some sort of investigation what do you know about that and she's like well i don't know even if i did uh, know something i don't know that i'd be able to tell you hey big boy mm. <laughs> what we can't see is that her foot's uh nearing his crotch under the table Yes, eyebrows are, are rocketing up and down. <laughs> um, so he's saying, you know, I need to, if you know anything about that, uh, Jack and, and participating in an investigation, you know, that could mean um, that somebody would want to kill him, you know, the person that he might be cooperating against. So that might be good for me to know in regard to this uh, murder trial, which, you know, just want to put it out there. Lawyers don't need to prove you know if they're if they're trying to defend somebody it's not on their shoulders to find the killer they just have to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that their person didn't do it yeah i yeah well that's that's why brian dennehy is such a good lawyer even though he's not a you know even though he's not a murder lawyer it's like well you know he goes the extra mile he he what he lacks in experience he makes up for in grit and uh, fortitude and go you know uh, uh dedication yeah a for effort um, is what i'm saying Anyway, he uh, we kind of culminate the scene with him saying, "Well, you know, I got to be honest. I, I did think about this uh, this this little dinner as something social. Yes, more, maybe more yes. than once. What do you know? What do you know about it, lady? Huh? <laughs> you know, you know, back in law school, your bones were frequently dreamed of being jumped. And <laughs> gross. Uh, we go back yeah. home. Paul uh, is talking to Aisha, the caretaker." who is just, I guess, a living caretaker. I don't know. Uh, yeah, yeah. Says she's, that, she's, yeah. Presumably she is because of how many times he leaves his house late at night to go to murder scenes. <laughs> yes. Says that, uh, hey, your, so- your daughter seems a little down today. Why don't you go up there and talk to her? And uh, he goes, okay, I guess uh, I'll go up there. Uh, walks up to his, her room, and he's like, are you still awake? <laughs> and we get this shot that's like, if this was any other movie, it would be a killer kid movie. Uh, the the noir lighting on it is like it just the perfect like this perfect shadow cuts off the top of her head and you just see her mouth. <laughs> He's like, "Hey, kiddo, you awake?" And she's like, "Yeah, I'm still here, <laughs> and still st- thinking about mom and all the promises you made her. <laughs> still thinking about the complicated notions of God and heaven and what that means for our lives here as mortals." <laughs> Um, but I do want to mention, okay, so I'm not going to spend too much time on the scene, but this scene with his daughter, like, it, it, it finally chipped away at me. And, like, he's talking to her very honestly because she's asking him about his date, and, and he's saying, well, you know, no one can really, really place your mom. You know, you're going to go on to find love someday. That doesn't mean you're going to love me or your mom any less, does it? It's just going to be different, you know? Mm. This this scene really won me over with this relationship. I still don't think it necessarily needs to be here, but like it worked on me. I'm like, this is a fucking good dad. Yeah, yeah. I I, I feel like is this the one where he says to her something about how like one day you're gonna meet someone and then yeah. you'll like forget about. I think that's setting her up with some weird expectations for dating later in life. I, I mean, it's <laughs> it's coming from a good place, but it's also just going to lead her to put way too much pressure on relationships down the, the road. Yeah. I guess that's a problem for another TV movie, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> that, that's the bulk of the second half of this. 
Yeah, it's, it's it's all just her in college and, you know, trying yeah. to trying to reconcile her feelings of, of, you know, puppy love for dudes or women with the fact that uh, her mom died and she doesn't want to replace her. That's the, the influence he's having on her. Uh, oh. Hence we get undue influence to influence do. Or unto influence. <laughs> or or to do to influence. Oh, good lord. <laughs> or or un, undue influence Brenmar College Drift. I don't know. There's a lot of options. There are. Um, okay. We move a little bit later. Uh, he runs into his partner, Harry. Turns out uh, his partner has been investigating the Merlots. They were renting the house. They didn't even own that shit, bro. What? I know. What? But that's such a bad <laughs> deal to rent. How are you going to build equity, Merlots? <laughs> so uh, he didn't find out much else about him, but he did find out, hey, Paul, check this out. I found out where she works. At the post office. That's right. The post office. Um, One of those cushy government jobs. I, that's Will that come into play later? Thinking. Hmm. Weird to be, like, weird to, like, even though they're renting and not owning, it's still a very ritzy neighbor. Like, oh, yeah, I live across the street from the United States Senator. What do you do? I work at the post office. What? A government what? job. Just, hmm. I, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's I mean, it's a steady job with great benefits, but the money, I don't know. I mean, I guess I got to watch part two before you I do got to watch part two. Uh, he approaches the teller. <laughs> he buys a, a sheet of stamps um, and he starts talking to the teller. Uh, he's like, hey, what can you tell me about Kathy Merlo? And, and she's uh, like, oh, yeah, Kathy, she used to work here. Yeah, or, yeah. She doesn't. Oh, she doesn't quite say that. She's like, oh, yeah, I know of Kathy. Uh, but I can't tell you if she works here. Then her like mean ass boss comes over, who in yeah. the Coen Brothers version, this would be played by Francis McDormand, uh, without question. <laughs> wow, that's very very strong McDormand vibes. But yeah, she comes over, shuts Dennehy down entirely. Like <laughs> by, this is not by me- saying Dennehy's like I, I don't I just want to know if she worked here. I don't you know like and she's like okay well if you want to find out you got to fill out form one hundred fifty eight B. It's like. There are forms to fill out if you like. I get the joke they're going for that back in the day you had to fill out a form for everything with the government, but uh, uh, the, t- <laughs> today in the day you still have to do that. As someone who yeah. just did his taxes, you have to fill out a form for everything. Yeah, but okay. So I'm just saying she gives him a specific form, <laughs> two forms by the way, of finding out if she even worked there. Why is that a form <laughs> at the post office? Yeah, it's definitely um yeah, it's it's a pretty it's a pretty solid way of giving him the runaround though. You yeah. have to you have to admit. He is he is ran around by this. And he is. They and they he runs outside. They run outside, him and Harry, uh Harry's still with him. They go outside and Harry gives him one of these like this is like the most definition of Harry in this movie. Uh where Harry's like, "Well, you know what? Uh they got a when they have a an ironclad case, what you have to do uh, and he's like, you got to put the work in, right? And he goes, no, you got to play dirty, real dirty. <laughs> got to get down and roll around in the mud, see? <laughs> got to, got to make it, you know. Just got to drag the other, the other person, uh, you know, the the other, yeah, you know, the defendant or the pro- I, I don't even know. He, he, yeah, he's a sleazy lawyery dude. I wasn't paying super close attention. You know it, Landon. <laughs> and then uh, apparently they walk through a time warp wormhole because he just. It, you know, without losing a beat of time, walks around to the back of the building where the woman he was just talking to was getting off of work. 
And it's like, what I love about this scene is it's like, I've been to a few post offices in my time. A, yeah. this is like the biggest post office I've ever <laughs> yes. seen. Maybe because it's a pre-internet era. But also, it's like shift change down at the mine, like the whistle blows <laughs> and like hundreds of of letter carriers and postal employees are like walking out chatting with each other on yeah. their way to their cars like and i don't know i've just i've it's like the changing of the guard it's the changing of the mailman there's horses yeah. tromping around and a band playing as the new shift comes in <laughs> and then one of my favorite moments of the movie happens here where he's 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 not hounding her really but he's he's laying in saying listen i just need to find this information let me give you my card if you think about it he's like i don't know kathy might get in trouble he's like listen i got a mother that's on a murder trial i'm just trying to help her he's like, i don't know i think i'm done talking to you uh why don't you just leave me alone and as soon as she says that, just some random dude, not a character, doesn't come up again. We don't even I mean, see him say the line. Just grabs Paul's shoulder and goes, she said she wants to be left alone. <laughs> it's, it's, it's another mailman coming off his shift who, again, yeah. has the energy of, like, a steel worker or a coal miner who's <laughs> like, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> just oh, the, just one of those burly, fight-prone mailmen we all know about. <laughs> Uh, but it gives her just enough space to squeeze away and walk, uh, you know, uh, make her escape. So she does. Paul arrives back home to his own house, by the way. Uh, yes. And as he gets out of the car, he is accosted by three ruffians, uh, three three hellion teenage bikers. <laughs> some street urchins, some, uh, some street <laughs> toughs, three rude dudes who are copping massive tudes. Uh, they're looking for they're looking for danny um yes <laughs> okay i don't know why they're at paul's house looking for danny for one thing no i don't either but it's, they are it's a real yeah and these teens who you know are clearly playing you know 25 year olds playing 18 year olds yes uh somehow think that they have the intimidation skills to stand up to brian dennehy like i understand dennehy's like a sensitive guy in this movie but i even in that i was not buying this like dennehy could break all three of these guys in half in a second (laughs) you come at brian dennehy you best not miss like it it, (laughs) they've got they've got numbers but i was halfway expecting one of them to like pull out a pull out a switchblade like the guy in chinatown (laughs) or something like they they made three walking tall movies and Brian Dennehy is just a walking walking tall movie like you <laughs> yes and no i i mean it's it's definitely but he still seems a little bit uh, you know he he still seems a little bit intimidated by them until a conveniently yeah. placed federal agent walks out of his house <laughs> and frightens well, him away well it's just some dude we don't even know who he is and paul doesn't know who he is just some dude walks out of his house and goes hey you need some help <laughs> And it, and at this point they're like, oh, two middle-aged men. All right, pal, we're gonna we're we're a bunch of tweaking, angry teenagers, but we we're gonna back down in this case. Oh my god, um, they go inside, and it turns out that Dana's there, and this guy is a federal agent, uh, Dana's partner, um, and Dana, I, I, listen, <laughs> Paul, I understand you're back on the single and mingle scene. Um, red flags if the woman you just had one date with shows up and starts making dinner with your daughter before you arrive home. 
Yeah, I mean, she is coming on mighty strong. Which is, and it's it's funny also because Jean Smart, is, you know, she's great and is playing the character that Jean Smart usually plays, this kind of streetwise, easy breezy yeah. lady who is nonetheless like throwing herself really hard at Brian Dennehy. And Real so hard. on one hand, she's like, "Hey, screw you! I don't care. I'm one of the guys." And also like, "Hey, I came to your house and started hanging out with your daughter to show her, show you what a cool <laughs> lady I am." All I'm saying is, I've seen the movie audition. There are certain things you don't want to overlook in in love and love and romance, and one of them is an overeager woman. Yes, yes, definitely, definitely true. Uh, look out for any um, slightly mobile gunny sacks in her house. Uh, so. <laughs> Anyway, uh, yeah, so they, they talk out on the back patio. Uh, it turns out that, you know, they reveal to him that uh, Senator Vega has turned state's evidence against all of his old whiny, diny, corruption-y buddies in the Senate yeah. and is wearing a wire to try and incriminate them. Yeah, and she apparently has run the, you know, the information up the flagpole to see if she can help Paul, and this is the information that she's got for him. Yeah, uh, and basically says, you know what? Uh, we can't give you any more. We can't compromise that that mission. But you know, we'll try to wrap it up before. Uh, uh, we'll we'll try to end it. We'll try to end our investigation before uh, the Myrtle trial begins, so it doesn't interfere. Yes. And then the other lawyer is like, you know, all right, we're gonna get out of here, or the federal agent, oh, or whatever. God. And Gene Gene this- Smart is like. Uh, oh no! This you was... you go on ahead, and he's like, "I'll wait outside." Oh, I've been that guy so many times. <laughs> Where it's just like, like, "Oh, what? No, the... yeah, no, I found what I'm gonna fuck tonight. So why don't you go home alone? Yeah, quit, quit, quit cock blocking me here. Get 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 out of here. Get out of here." It's like he, he's like, oh, "Okay, I'll wait for you out front." No, 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 that's cool. You can you can uh, you can leave, but there's only one car. I'll walk home. I I live near here. Like there's so much effort put into. <laughs> Like it is almost clumsily like no 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 I no I let, let me make it very clear you I don't want to leave I will stay here you can go other person I I'm trying to facilitate a candlelit dinner with this guy and his daughter so I can get her on board with me being the woman in his life I'm Jean and, Smart I have nothing better to do and yet Dennehy abstains after all of that. He goes, I don't know that I'm quite ready to go down that road yet. And she goes, well, tie, tie fix, kiss on the cheek. You're missing out, bro. Peace out. I guess I'm not going to wait around forever. Home. Gotta, I'm just going to stop, stop at the musical store, get some piano wire on my way home. Huh? <laughs> um, so anyway... Yeah, uh, th- 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 my next my next note here is this movie barely has Patricia Richardson in it. Like, why are we watching this? We were watching Brian. De- this is a Brian Dennehy Gene Smart movie with a <laughs> with a souciant of Patricia Richardson sprinkled throughout. Uh, it's true. Um, <laughs> but I love Brian Dennehy. So, uh, okay. <laughs> Later, Paul tries to explain his relationship with uh, <laughs> with Dana to his daughter. But then we go to the prison uh, where we yes. get another – our next Patricia Richardson scene. Then he is mm-hmm. uh, talking the case over with Laurel, talking about Jack. Uh, Laurel suggests, hey, do you ever think Jack did it? Maybe he's the one that killed Melanie? Because uh, it turns out that Melanie was fooling around. Everybody knew about it, man. Everybody knew hey. about it. And she was pregnant. And you know what? This is Laurel Laurel giving the dish to to Paul. Jack knew about it. Jack knew she was pregnant. You know why? Because he had a vasectomy, man, so he could fuck around more. Record scratch. What? 
Yes, uh, I, I, another huge revelation that I almost kind of wish that she'd mentioned sooner. That would have been useful to know. <laughs> like, I feel like that could have been helpful to any number of people trying to clear your name. Yeah. Um, Paul, I, uh, Paul in his, uh, his like, Fincher-level obsession brings up the Merlots to Laurel. And she's like, forget about them, man. Get excited about Jack being the one who did it. Do it or get the fuck out. Yeah, and he he's kind of, you know, getting stroppy with her, and she basically is like, fuck it, you're fired, I'm getting a new lawyer. She goes to the guard and says, hey, take me back to my cell, this guy isn't my lawyer anymore. And then he is like, nope, I'm actually technically still your lawyer until the judge pushes <laughs> the green button on the lawyer change machine, I, I guess. Yeah, haha, you did, did, you, did you hear that? Oh, did the door shut before before I got that last line in? Oh, she, did, she didn't hear that. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> you can't fire me. I quit. Uh, but on his way out of the prison, Paul sees Danny show up to uh, schedule a time to talk to Laurel. And um, he just kind of goes, huh, that's interesting, ain't it? Um, hmm. Continues walking. Uh, he goes back to Paul home is how I wrote that in my notes. <laughs> Paul home. <laughs> that's the that's like it's like a Lord of the Rings. It's like a name, a name of a place. Ah, yes, the the ancient the ancient heritage of the Pauls is rooted in the Paul home. The stories of our proud people are written in the hanging Basquiat tapestries of this house. <laughs> Paul home. Uh, Vega starts banging on the door. Jack is there. He wakes Paul up out of a dead sleep, and uh, Jack bursts in. He's looking for Danny. Where the fuck did he go, man? Uh, and in one of the biggest suspensions of disbelief in this movie short of the three twiggy children that were threatening jack or uh, threatening paul a second ago um richard mauser punches brian dennehy in the face and dennehy just falls to the floor like a sack of potatoes that would dennehy never <laughs> that would never never happen um uh, also again sitting united states senator Barging into another man's home and punching, wearing him in a the wire, face. wearing a wire. Yes, who who is cooperating with the feds? <laughs> like like you open the newspaper. Senator Tim Kaine went to a lawyer's <laughs> house and punched him in the face. <laughs> I I just I mean I get that I get the United States senators do seedy crappy shit all the time, but like this guy is just so blatantly doing stuff that I I it's. Funny and and to me. The, the punch that he gives too isn't like an uppercut. It's not like a solid punch. He basically like makes a fist and then brings it downward, like almost like a, a slap with a fist. Yes. Uh, it was it was just kind of a, a shitty punch. Anyway, it would is not this, take that heat to the floor. Is this what the NBC event series The Slap was about? It's all just analyzing how this <laughs> yes. how this slap-like hit could take down Dennehy. The point of this scene is that Danny has disappeared, uh, and yes. Jack doesn't know where he is, and clearly Paul doesn't know where he is. Uh, so when he goes back to the prison in the next scene, he and Laurel talk about uh, Danny. He asks him, where, the, where, the, where is he? Hey, Laurel, where is he? You've been talking about getting Danny out of here. Now he's not here. You got him out. Where'd he go? Tell me. Mm-hmm. And she won't tell him. And he's She's, like, this is not the way to get custody of your child. Uh, taking a note from Santa Claus. <laughs> I, th thank you. Thank you for taking the words out of my mouth. 
I mean, it would be so. So basically, both parents from Home Improvement um, are in in their other work not very well versed in how to navigate the vagaries of divorce and child custody. Exactly. Uh, so yeah, whisking away your child that you are fighting custody over while you're wanted for murder and you're sitting in prison is not the greatest way of uh, you know exempting yourself from reckless behavior. And and Patricia Richardson goes, okay, wait, what if I somehow kill Santa Claus and then I become Santa Claus? Is that a good way to get custody of my son? <laughs> oh, then we get the, the next scene where the petition to get a new lawyer is before the judge and judge asks for a reason. Laurel says uh, she doesn't trust him and doesn't have confidence in him. Yeah. And we're really left with uh, this scene didn't need to be here. Uh, this whole plot line of wanting a new lawyer didn't need to be here because we don't get any conclusion to it. And Paul continues to be her lawyer. So I don't know what this is about. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we go uh, to. There's a ce- yeah. No, no. There's just a scene of him in his office feeling sorry for himself. And yeah, that's the all next of scene. His- all of his buddies rallying around him like at the end of It's a Wonderful Life to tell him what a good lawyer he is, despite the fact that he's kind of blowing this case. I don't know, Harry. I just uh, I feel like I've lost something since my wife died. Uh, and Harry says, shape the fuck up, man. <laughs> yeah. Slaps him in the face. What are you doing here involved in a murder trial? Laurel is fucking guilty as fuck. <laughs> You're saying you don't have confidence. And Paul's like, I don't know. I don't know, man. I just feel like I'm missing something. I don't understand the Merlots. Have I mentioned the Merlots to you? There's something about them. They just disappear. What's going on with them, man? (laughs) Uh, At some point, Gene Smart arrives and, you know, just drops by on another one of her flirty visits to tell him that the feds were tapping Senator uh, Vega's phones and that when the doctor called to tell Melanie she was pregnant, it was Jack who took the call. So... Oh, mm, tapping on my head. Um, he... Uh, so he definitely knew that she was pregnant, which gives him reason to know, okay, I had a vasectomy. She was pregnant. I'm not the father. Therefore, now I have motive to kill her. Yes. <laughs> he thought to himself, I have Jack. motive. Therefore, I must there, Therefore, I must kill her. Um, yeah. We... He... Yeah. Uh, no, he goes, you know, uh, Dennehy tries to go and talk to her public defender, uh, but her public defender sucks yeah, and Again, is this busy. is the whole thing that we, we could have cut out of this and saved 10 minutes, but uh, yeah. But this is the only time we get a walk and talk. The new lawyer's like, wh- who are you? You're, you're Laurel Vega's husband? Okay, great. Now, what would, what's, remind me about that case. Basically, just like he has no time for the Laurel Vega case, and Paul is chipping away at his moral soul, a.k.a. the deathbed promise he made to his wife, which is not... Not reiterated enough. <laughs> yeah, I have to. Yeah. I have to protect Laurel, and putting her in the hands of this dude is not going to do it. Listen, listen. The, the The flight has nearly arrived at Orlando International Airport. The person has been reading for a while. They need one more reminder of why Brian Dennehy is doing all this. <laughs> but we get a walk and talk, which was the most exciting camera conversation we've had on the movie so far. Um, yes. We cut back to Paul's office, and. Uh, He's talking to Harry again, and um, he says uh, he's talking about Laurel's new new lawyer, and saying, "You know what? Uh, you know what they call people who have lawyers like him? Convicts." <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was that that line is in that actor's reel. I promise you that. <laughs> um, I can do comedy too, folks. <laughs> And uh, there's a knock on the door, and there's a note uh, that 
Paul gets uh, that's from Marcy. Remember Marcy? Yes. Wait, Marcy. He doesn't remember Marcy until he realizes, <laughs> oh, who works at the post office? <laughs> I'm Jerry Seinfeld. She works at the post office, George. <laughs> she yada uh, yada threw a cover up. <laughs> they go to the post office, or Paul goes to the post office at least, sneaks up to Marcy's window, and she says, no, hey, I'll be no, off. And- no, no, no. There, there's a no. whole line of people there, and he's like, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, goes up to talk to her, and I'm just like, that's why I've I said waited he sneaks in- up to it. He sneaks past them. No, he doesn't sneak past them. He, like, says, excuse me, and pushes past them. If I've been Very in lines at post though. offices, listen. He I sneaks know up they- right behind the ear and goes, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. There's, and, and listen. I'm listening. I know. We've said a lot about Brian Dennehy and how tough he is, and I'm yeah. not a very tough man. If some dude cuts the entire effing line at the post office, doesn't matter how sneaky he is, how if, if he whispers, excuse me, into my ear, I'll kill him. Like, I might die in the process, but I'm, I, like, <laughs> you, I'm, would you even don't cut the line. Brian Dennehy on a mission, a deathbed wish that he's trying to fulfill for his dead wife to protect her sister. You would stop you him. Know, a single yes. father. You know what? You know what? I would. I would. No, listen. I'm He's just, just I would, trying I'm to change would, the world for the good. I'm, you would, I'm just you trying. You would I'm, die in the line of battle. I'm just trying to fucking get a package into the mail, and I've already <laughs> been waiting here for 20 minutes. And what about my deathbed mission? What if my wife died and told me my dying wish is that you mail this package for me? <laughs> like, who knows however many other deathbed wishes are happening? He's like, just, uh, I, I don't know. I the, the number one thing that upsets me in movies is when it's like, oh, I need to get on this plane. There's a line at the ticket counter. Okay, I'll just run to the front of the line and say, excuse me. No, you won't. That's not how any of this works. Like, I, I, I just so I mean, you, what you're saying is this is a preview of our next tropes episode for our nights honestly honestly yes honestly look all I'm saying is the second Brian Dennehy cut the entire line at the post office I was like I don't care if Patricia Richardson gets all, the death penalty all, all goodwill this movie has been building towards has been thrown out the window yeah, yeah. I'm, I would love to see how Steve Martini describes, uh, you know, the the clamor of the various women's breasts in line as he pushes them aside to go stand at the window and take their make, rightfully anointed place. You make it sound like a Ralph Bakshi movie. <laughs> well, yeah, Steve Martini makes it sound like a Ralph Bakshi movie when he describes these women. Um, okay, he cuts the whole line. I'm sorry, I just had to get that out there. We're so okay. close to the end, folks. He sneaks up to the window and... <laughs> Uh, she says, Not "Hey, I'll dignify that. <laughs> I, I get off in ten minutes, uh, or I have my lunch break in ten minutes. Uh, I'll meet you out back." And then she takes. Um, I think Eddie Van Halen is the next person in line, <laughs> judging by his haircut. Um, uh, outside, uh, where the changing of the guards happens, yeah. <laughs> she decides, "Hey, I decided I, I finally want to talk to you. Uh, if it means I saw I saw the the." story in the newspaper about your client uh, she's just a mother um i believe everything i read in newspapers so therefore i want to help you um here's what i know and, about kathy and, and you know in a in a mystery like this whenever uh whenever a minor character particularly a woman uh with vital information starts being super super helpful to the person who's trying to solve the mystery that's how you know that that person is going to live a very long rich fulfilling life <laughs> retire die of natural causes at the age of 150 uh-huh. you know they're they're going to live very long as soon as they start helping the detective so yeah so she, she starts helping paul <laughs> and yeah. 
tells him, uh, okay, so I don't know much about Kathy. Uh, she worked here for a month, but you know, her and I became kind of friendly. She sent me a postcard from Jamaica, which is where her and her husband, uh, apparently went to, uh, I don't know much else about her, but, uh, she might've left something in her office. Uh, why don't we go inside and check? Yeah. And so they're going through Mrs. Merlot's old office. So Mrs. Mm-hmm. Merlot, who has a corner office at the post office, I don't uh, understand. <laughs> only worked there for a month, has a corner office at the post office, uh, hasn't it been is... there in weeks, and yet the office is still uh, <laughs> vacant. So, hey, you know, in, in the 90s, the post office was so big. They had <laughs> they had miles of vacant rooms and offices. They had more space than they knew what to do with. Uh, um, so she's, she's like, I don't know, what are we looking for? He's like, I don't know, anything like an al- address book, Rolodex, anything that has phone numbers and names. And uh, while they're in the middle of this, the Francis McDormand boss comes in complaining, what the fuck are you doing here? This is a federal property, motherfucker. Get the fuck out of here. Um, yeah, again, again, very, like all of the times that Landon is saying fuck, that is actual direct quotes from this made-for-TV <laughs> Verbatim, they, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They had to air a lot of, uh, a lot of warnings up front. Um... So in the middle of like so this the, this supervisor is just losing her shit completely and then and then a random dude comes in and hands Mrs like uh, or hands Mrs Merlot's friend a package like hey package for you and then he leaves and she's like and who are you what are you doing here this is a restricted area I never and the he's, kid just he's he's a postal worker <laughs> that yeah. is in a post office hands yeah. handing a oh God, yeah okay no no it's just this this ultra ultra mega like super maxi top secret back room of the post office that even <laughs> letter carriers can't go into uh so francis mcdormand shows him out and he's like okay okay i thought i'd get further but i didn't so oh well uh he starts walking away then in the uh infamous words of a band that i'm forgetting uh at the moment saliva in the infamous words of the rock band saliva tick tick boom <laughs> papers go flying everywhere shards yeah, of glass fly into the factory. air long reams of like toilet paper or printer a, paper it is out. the 90s and b it is a postal office okay it, it is literally a building filled with paper you're right um <laughs> But this is a huge explosion. Like they, From it's like a they, tiny, they, tiny box. Yeah, they, it's like they smuggled a nuclear weapon in that in that yeah. package that this random dude handed her. And uh, you know, who am I to to you know really point fingers at you know the IMDb error, errors section, the goofs? But um, I didn't get the sense that they were on the third floor of the building. <laughs> <laughs> when no, they were checking no. the back office. I definitely thought that was ground level, uh, but nope. And uh, you know what? What's a better cliffhanger to go out on uh, as papers and cinder blocks, uh, cinder blocks? No, cinders, ashes yeah. are all falling from the sky. The smoke hasn't even cleared yet, and we get a to be continued. Look, the only better cliffhanger is the one where Sylvester Stallone has to find a bunch of money that John Lithgow has uh, <laughs> dropped on top of a mountain. Um, yeah, so um, that's yeah, that's it. The one witness who could have helped him find the elusive Merlots has given him the clue that they're somewhere in Jamaica. No, no return address on the postcard that she conveniently sent to her to her postal pal. Yeah. Um, so I'm does guessing it, the does next it make episode... You, yeah, okay, that's where I was going to go. I know that uh, these are special episodes, so they're going to be a little bit longer. 
Um, uh, you mean that they're going to be almost an hour longer than the uh, <laughs> yes. than the thing that we're reviewing? Yeah, yeah, they're going to be But we're on a mid-season long. break, so we can take longer to make them and put them out, and people will listen to them however long <laughs> they want to take. Anyway, we'll, we'll split them up into into a million ten-minute chunks. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I have to. I have a question to ask you because I've read the book. I know where this is going. What do you think we're in store for for part two? Uh, I think that we are in store for uh, Undue Influence Goes to Jamaica. And I think that the <laughs> second part is going to be Brian uh-huh. Dennehy in swim trunks and flip-flops and a Hawaiian shirt <laughs> going door-to-door in Jamaica uh, looking for looking for the Merlots, um, uh-huh. which is why I'm so disappointed to hear that there's apparently a lot of courtroom drama in the next episode. All I can... All I can assume is that it's a jamaican court well Um, i will say i haven't watched the second part yet but i've read the book so i know what to expect i mean at some point you're gonna have to go through the court proceedings of the case of you know the prosecution the defense i don't know how much time they'll spend on it in the actual movie uh there are things that happened in the book that they could spend more time on which would be much more interesting to watch uh, but it feels like they've set up enough to, and, you know, in terms of budget, what's, <laughs> what's more budget friendly than sitting in a courtroom and True. You know, filming shot reverse shot. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Cause this is also the explosion at the post office is very much, they didn't cut to another explosion from another movie. Like this is very clearly the same building that they had <laughs> they established cut, before. They didn't cut the dark man all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they, yeah. T- this isn't Tim getting his face blown off. This is this is an. Act- I mean, most likely this explosion probably was used in a subsequent MacGyver episode or a, or an A Team episode or something. Like it's yeah. you have seen this explosion elsewhere because they did spend the money to do it. But yeah, so, they're going to. Here's the thing: yeah. is like uh, that I'm a little bummed about, and why I would love to get Patricia Richardson on the record talking about this movie is. Um, there's no IMDb trivia for this. So I literally have no concept of any production stuff for this movie. Uh, for and all I know, that could have been stock footage from a MacGyver episode of that explosion. Well, no, except it's the exact same building that we have seen Brian Dennehy walking into and out of earlier with the exact Which same is just surroundings. The, the Universal Lot Post Office. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. Yes, the one that has 10,000 employees. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. That could be the case. I mean, well, yeah, there is a dearth of knowledge about the made-for-TV movie uh, uh, Undue Influence Part 1. So, <laughs> I, I mean, we're, try- we're trying to fill in those blanks in history, really. Yes. Yes, we are. <sighs> God. So, no other uh, guesses for what happens in Part 2? Jamaica, uh, courtroom j- stuff, anything you'd I like mean, to see? I- I mean, honestly, I, I at the at the end of the day, I think the murderer is her son. That's just kind of what I'm guessing because he's already on the record mm-hmm. as really not wanting to live mm-hmm. with uh, mm-hmm. Senator Vega, and uh, uh-huh. I think they're trying to suggest that that Senator Vega is the killer, but I think it was the son, you know, okay. because also he's in with a bad crowd and he rides a motorcycle, so clearly he's a rude <laughs> dude. You know, he's a, he's a bad dude. Listen, as soon as you get on a motorcycle, you can either go down the good and right path of the Fonz, or you can go down the wrong path of uh, every other bad guy. Like, yeah. You can go down the wrong path of uh, the bad guy in Raising Arizona. So, uh, um, you know, I think right, he's, well, he's on the Raising Arizona path. I, I will say this um, about the book. So, um, I, not to pat myself on the back too much, but... Uh, this is not my genre. I would never choose to pick up and read this sort of book. Not not to you know cast any derision on people who like this stuff. Uh, my yeah. mom being one of them. But while reading it, 
I wasn't sure if it was so far ahead of me that it was, you know, just spinning the tail, weaving, weaving the mystery around my brain in a way that I would never comprehend. Or if I was so far ahead of the book that I'm like, it can't possibly be this thing that I'm thinking of. And I don't know, about halfway, about this point uh, when the explosion happens in the book, which is about halfway, Yeah, uh, I had a couple ideas of how it would play out. And I was shocked to find that every single one of the ideas I had of how it played out, like, played out. Every, like, I had a couple different, like, this is how it's going to conclude, uh, or this is how it's going to conclude, or this is how it's going to conclude. And the book just goes, okay, let's conclude it all three ways. <laughs> so it's like kind of a clue situation where you get to pick the one choose, you want. or it's, choose, choose the one you want, I guess. Or or a or more of a murder on the Orient Express where every single person did it. <laughs> well, I can't say. I don't want to ruin it for you or our listeners, uh, particularly for you, because I know that the next watching is going to be a bit of a chore. So at least have the pleasure of a mystery being solved. I, you know what? Look, I, I, I go, I go into this with, uh, with my eyes open. I am excited to see the thrilling conclusion, and, uh, and yeah, and find out, uh, <laughs> find out what happens after that explosion. Hey, maybe, maybe that friendly post office lady lived somehow and is still <laughs> going to go on and, uh, you know, have a great life. Maybe it's his daughter. Oh, she's the killer. That would make sense. I mean, after after mommy died, I just had to understand. I had to take a life for myself to understand. <laughs> What happens to people when they die? But daddy, and, if mom is in heaven watching me and has God at her right hand, why didn't she have God stop me from committing this evil act? <laughs> oh, if only at least now that, that I'm way. at least now that I'm going to prison, I'll have lots of time to read heavy metaphysical philosophy books to try and get to the bottom of this. <laughs> oh god. Well, um <laughs> <laughs> until our thrilling conclusion uh, in our next episode of Undue Influence Part 2. This has been Gruntwork, and Gruntwork is made possible by our Patreons, uh, our, our patrons on Patreon. <laughs> yeah. And if you enjoyed today's episode and want to help us create more bonus content, consider becoming an official Grunthead sponsor over at patreon.com slash gruntworkpod. You can also leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to these things. It's the fastest, easiest way to support us and really goes a long way to get others to find the show. Stop by to say hi to us on Twitter or Instagram at GruntworkPod. W- oh, okay. I'm sorry. I thought that was my cue. <laughs> it was not. It was not yet. Or you can visit our website at... Oh, www.gruntworkpodcast.com. <laughs> where you can also see information about today's episode and sign up for our weekly newsletter to be notified whenever a new episode is released. Until next time when we bring you another episode in our series on undue influence. I've been Landon Solano. I've been Truman Caps. And remember, Flight 126 to Orlando is now boarding from Gate B6. That is Flight 126 boarding now to Orlando. If you've not made it through security with your yet, brother, we got to get to the gate. Flight 126 to Orlando. I have not been to an airport in quite some time, so I don't know what it sounds like.